Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. And just like that, we're back and we're set for UFC Fight Night on Drage versus Blanchfield. Yes, you heard that one right. And as always, one half of your host and duo, Craig Allen, Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP. With me as always, Matt Allen FNP, the respective socials and Matt across the wire. Listen, we were we were nice guys. Like we put the video out Friday night, Santos versus Blanchfield. So, nobody is a nice guy who we, says I'm a nice we, guy. We were okay. trying to be good fellas to the community. Nobody watched it. Nobody knew it was out there. And then Saturday night, as the fights are going on, UFC 284, everybody had fun. Santos out of the fight. Andrade is in. Nobody still watched the video, so we took it down because we want to build that anticipation. But I was away this week. You were here. Now we're reunited. We're getting set for that updated main event, number three versus number 10, and Santos originally number one. So you have to think with a win, I'd say regardless, Blanchfield gets a title shot out of it. I would agree. Or you have to fight Manon Fialro. But we're really excited about this card, the switch of the main event, and a lot, a lot, a lot of prospects featured on this card as well. And we're really going to get down and dirty into that. It really does feel, though, Matt, with all these prospects, that it is a fight and pick special. And this is one of those rare opportunities where the short-notice replacement opponent is probably going to make a much more entertaining fight. Like, I'm probably more excited for the new fight that we have this weekend, because with Jessica Andrade, I feel like we did a pretty good job building up her last fight, just giving her the respect that she deserves. Like, this is someone who, if the Hall of Fame in the UFC is what a real Hall of Fame should be, she kind of matches all the parameters for one of those Hall of Fame level athletes, and for her to be willing to take an opportunity like this and give such a big opportunity to a fighter like Blanchfield on such short notice, A, shows how much of a gamer Jessica Andrade is, and B, this is such a big test for Blanchfield because it adds a little bit more star power to this fight now, because Santos is a very difficult fighter, but she probably doesn't have the fanfare that an Andrade has, so if Blanchfield is able to get the win this weekend, the sky really is the limit for her. Well, listen, there's 11 total fights on the card. We're gonna throw it on over to our fight of the night screen. We always pick two. You're not wrong until Saturday night. Let's throw it on over to the fight of the night screen. Let us know down below in the comment section who you've got. It's time for the fight of the night with Fight Night Picks. You don't want to go out there early on like Jake Hager, blow your load, I've got a phoner, talk about the fight too much, but Jim Miller taking on Alexander Hernandez. He just added this to the card, and just so you're aware, Jim Miller originally supposed to be taking on Mogli Gabriel Benitez in this matchup, so Hernandez, it was in his, what, 19th fight, he decided, hey, screw it, I'm going down to featherweight. Did not the result wasn't good. The fight wasn't bad up until he started to slow down in the second round, and then he got teed off on by Quarantillo. But you look at this matchup at lightweight. Jim Miller has just been on the winning train since 2019. He's, what, 6-3 and three in this division. He's picked up a lot of performance bonuses along the way. And for Jim Miller, made his debut at UFC 89. Chris Lieben was in the main event of that card, and he's an MMA judge now in 2023. Kind of incredible. While Jim Miller's still fighting on. So I really do like this fight. And for this lightweight division, while Hernandez has kind of been up and down throughout his UFC tenure, 
this fight all of a sudden now kind of has connotations for that top 20 in this division. I think it's a must win for Alexander Hernandez, to be honest with you. He had a lot of hype earlier on in his career, hit the skids a little bit, and this really is his chance to get back on track because for Jim Miller, he's kind of the epitome of a fighter that we talk about all the time. It's, hey, if you beat him, great things are going to happen. But at this stage of his career, if you do lose to Jim Miller, we kind of have to question your long-term future, especially against some of the top levels of competition. But I think this will be an incredible fight. You know Alexander Hernandez has his back against the wall, and Jim Miller is always the perfect guy to throw into a fight when you think it could be a fight of the night. So I'm extremely excited for this matchup. Should be a big time fight in this one. And in our second pick, Matt, you kind of have to go off the board just a little bit because 11 total fights on this card. The co-main event is two guys meeting in the middle, a middleweight taking on a heavyweight. But when you look at it, AJ Fletcher, the ghost representing Louisiana, a guy that's trained with Alan Joban and Dustin Poirier in the past, is taking on the debuting Zimbabwean fighter, Themba Garimbo, the former EFC welterweight champ, a guy that challenged for their lightweight with lightweight belt over there as well and for Garimbo picked up a big win at Fury FC that now vaulted him into the UFC so a guy that fans have really kind of come to know and love for a very long time wildlife story too with Garimbo and not every day we throw a debuting fighter into a fight in the night screen it's just AJ Fletcher has proved that he could get into a fight of the night with a box of pool noodles he really could that's just his fighting style and uh, we talk about Justin Gaethje is kind of the ideal fighter who just goes in there bites down on the mouthpiece and throws bombs but AJ Fletcher is very much cut from that exact same cloth. He likes to go for very explosive techniques up the middle, but he leaves himself wide open for camera shots. And I think oh, that's what's yeah. going to make this fight so much fun. You have two guys who are basically all offense and no defense, so it should be really fun for as long as it lasts. Should be a good one. Again, let us know down below in the comments section who you have in the fight of the night. You're not wrong until Saturday night. Toss down the comments. So it does have the feel of a fight night pick special, and you might be down on it for that reason, but we always get hyped up for a lot of these prospects. You have one of the biggest records in MMA, the undefeated 23-0, Hussein Ashkabov. He's got a brother that fights over with Bellator, but he never has. He really is the creme de la creme of kind of like the unseen prospects because he hasn't fought in about three years. We also have Michael Chandler impersonation, Batman himself, Clayton Carpenter. Nickname is Concrete. Don't know what that's about, but he's coming off a win on Dana White's Contender Series, taking on Juan Camilo Ronderos. We also have the Black Wolf, Aliaskab Hezriev. No, it's Nazim Sadikov. Just a nickname that continues to be played in MMA. We also have Jamal Pogues is making his UFC debut. Former EFC welterweight champ Themba Garimbo is going to be taking on AJ Fletcher. And last but certainly not least, depending on whether or not you gauge an Ultimate Fighter finale as a UFC fight, because they wear different trunks, we have Zach Paunga. He was defeated. Second round knockout loss in the heavyweight bracket, taking on Muhammad Usman. Paunga was a big favorite in that fight. He's going to be competing in this weekend's co-main event. So look out for that fight coming up on Saturday. Matt, again, I completely agree with you. When you look at this card, you have the former Bantamweight, then Strawweight, then Flyweight, Strawweight, Flyweight, Strawweight, and Jessica Andrade, the former Strawweight champ. She is, and for her... You had to think. With her win over Lauren Murphy, it was very convincing. Maybe she was due a title shot. She steps in, takes this fight on a week's notice. A five-rounder. And don't forget, Aaron Blanchfield also taking this one on short notice. This fight was originally due for three rounds. But a few weeks ago, it was bumped up to main event status. So, a lot to really look forward to. Question mark kicks, Matt. When is that one live? Uh, it's only two hours before the fight card starts. What time is this fight card at? It's two know? hours before the fight okay. card. It's not an early one. It's a normal one with the boys. So, make sure you 
you check that out at Fight Night Picks, Instagram, and Twitter. Craig Allen FMP, Matt Allen FMP, podcast fans, we thank you. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. As we always say, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. <sighs> I was born for this division. I was born for this division, and I'm coming for everyone. The man on the left-hand side of the screen that's not Matt or I, Juan Camilo Ronderos, coming off of one of the most strange and bizarre UFC debuts I think we've ever seen in our entire lives, nearly two years ago, is going to be taking on the Dana White's Contender Series contract-winning concrete Clayton Carpenter, Matt. Do you think he's like one of those guys that when they decide to pour a sidewalk, he's the first kid that stuck his hands in there and now as an adult at 26, he's still pulling that same Probably. It's probably just a big bit that he has and all of his friends are like, all right, come on, Triple C, get over it. Look at how big my feet are. I'm still a cool guy. But Matt, I want to flip it on back to Juan Camilo Ronderos for just a second because it was announced on May 21st by the man with the blue shirt, John Morgan, that Ronderos would be stepping in on one day's notice to take on David Dvorak. And when you look at that matchup, Matt... Paiva versus Dvorak, that would have been a fun fight. Ronderos versus Dvorak, well, you look at it and you go, okay, Ronderos is 4-0 at the time, which isn't much of a pro record. Can I say this just really quick? Ronderos was almost a victim of his own success, though, because that was the big conversation coming into the UFC. He beat Eric Shelton, and to some of you guys, that might not mean that much, but that is a former UFC fighter who has a very good level of competition. Eric Shelton had a decent UFC run, and for Ronderos, at just 4-0, well, he was already, what? I mean, 9-0 as an amateur. He's 4-0 as a pro. He's getting wins against guys that you want to see him to get wins against I guess if I can put it that way but you look at it and he weighed 128.5 which isn't good and then he goes into the fight and he tries to land a couple of shots on the outside but he's got big resets and he gets hit he gets clipped and then after he gets clipped he gets his back taken and he gets choked out and it was a really really tough one because that rear naked choke was in there quite tight but you miss weight you're plus 400 underdog all right you're gonna get another opportunity Except he gets suspended by the Nevada State Athletic Commission for marijuana and cocaine, and then he's off on a crazy long layoff. USADA kind of dealt with the marijuana or the cocaine on its own, but out of all of that, a big suspension. It was a nine-month suspension, and then he had a freak accident. So I listened to an interview that he did February 5th. It came out with JHK, All-Star MMA, and he went down through it. He said he was out for nine months after like not just due to the suspension but due to the fact that he dislocated his elbow tore everything up over there initially the first doctor said you need surgery the second doctor according to him was the doctor that worked on francis Ngannou's knee he said you don't need surgery just work on it rehab it on your own so for ron Daros, really long road to recovery out of all of this if you go over and you follow on his instagram page lots of follows for ron Daros, but he's really kind of coached it looks like it's been kind of the cardio kickboxing over at Extreme Couture, but Ronderos has taken a nice approach to his coaching and he's really kind of leaned into the UFC PI in the time away. Said he saved about three to four thousand dollars on meal prep, on all the training, on all the fact that they have sports psychologists there. And he's a huge proponent for all of that. So you love to see that out of a guy that's based in Vegas, whose nickname is the Hundred Emoji. I thought I'd just throw that one in there for fun, but that is his nickname. But when I look at Ronderos, Matt, did he get shafted in a debut against a guy like Dvorak? Easily. 110% he did. Does it suck that he got suspended for the, the no sugar and the, the green bud? You bet your ass it does. Now, they're not doing him a huge favor in taking on a guy like Clayton Carpenter, who does have quite a bit of hype, undefeated prospect, which is where Ronderos was coming into the Dvorak on a day's notice, though. That is true. But this should be a fun fight because of what you already said. I mean, if you look at it for Ronderos, trains extreme tour with uh, big-time names. Amir Al-Bazi, Manel Kopp, and the guys that weigh heavily, you know, like a, like a Dan Ige. 
Guys that are going to get you ready and prepared for a guy like Clayton Carpenter. Well, that's the thing about Ronderos. He does have a good skill set that has synergy with that kind of a gym. He has very good takedowns. He has very high-level submissions. He does like to go for the back a lot. He is more of a back-taker, I would say, kind of a grappler. And this might not be the best comp, but a guy whose name has been in the headlines a lot this week is like Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee is thought of as a wrestler, but he's not really a wrestler like uh, Kamara Usman or like Colby Covington. He is kind of a wrestler into a back-taker. And of course, for Juan Camilo, that's kind of the higher sell of him. But that's very much the skill set that he will like to employ, but I will be curious to see how is his striking going to look against Clayton Carpenter, because Carpenter is so talented on the outside with a lot of his straight shots, and if that is going to be the story of the fight, I think it's going to be very difficult for Ronderos to not only get on the inside and have success with his own striking, but that's how he's going to have success with his own grappling too, and I really think distance for Ronderos is going to be the most important thing he has to manage in this fight, because if he is able to get on the inside and on the outside of range without really being tagged for his troubles, he could have a lot of success, but those are things that rely heavily on rhythm. And how do you get rhythm in an MMA fight or in a UFC contest? You get rhythm if you get the blues. But also, by being in there and, and just being consistent in the UFC octagon. And for Ronderos, I do worry a little bit about that time off. I was excited about him just getting the opportunity to make his UFC debut. Because that's the one good thing about a prospect taking a very difficult matchup. Is normally, if they lose, the UFC is still going to keep them around for another performance. Hopefully another two. For Ronderos, I, I do think that there is a skill set there that he could unlock with his submission ability. I just think this fight's going to be difficult with the takedown defense of Carpenter. And with his ability to stay on the outside. Because again, if Ronderos isn't able to crack that distance, I don't really know how he's going to be able to win rounds. Yeah, for Ron Darius, you're taking on Clayton Carpenter, one of the uber prospects that's out there. 6-1 and one as an amateur from 2015 to 2018. From 2019 on, 6-0 and oh as a pro. And this is a guy, Matt, like, if you look at it, he fought on a show called Iron Boy MMA 16. That's where he debuted in Phoenix, Arizona. If you look at Carpenter, he's an MMA lab guy. So you're going to have the Benson-Henderson connection, but Kyler Phillips is a main training partner. And if you look at it for Carpenter... The accolades outside of the mixed martial arts cage. USA Junior National Muay Thai Champion. Four-time Muay Thai National Champion. Junior uh, Golden Gloves Champion. World Junior Grappling and Pancration Medalist. He beat Aaron Pico in Pure Pancration in 2009. And an IBJJF World Champ, Gi and No Gi. And if you look at it, the fight that he had on Contender Series last year it was against a short notice replacement for Steve Erseg, it was Edgar Shaidas. And we talked about Edgar Shaidas on this channel as being a very good litmus test because Shaidas, what's he going to do? Light you up on the outside. And what did he do in the first round? Skill check, lit him up on the outside in the first round, blew up that right eye for Carpenter which forced Carpenter to make the adjustment in the fight to then wrestle and pour on his own pressure. And I liked what I saw out of Carpenter kind of getting through that first round. I'm curious to get third. your take on this, though. The flyweight division seems to be filled with these ready-made prospects. Like, the second they come into the division, not that, you know, you think he, they can become top 15 contenders immediately, but Tatsuko Taiga, Makayev, like, there's some really talented fighters here. Do you think Carpenter is of that caliber? Will he need a little bit more He's... time before he does refine? Because I feel like he will need a couple of performances against the likes of like a Juan Camilo Vanderos for him to then realize that type of ceiling. Shorty Torres is one of those guys that had that huge record and he, he did, didn't yeah. seem to be made ready but it seemed like he needed a little bit of testing. Carpenter to me is one of those guys and Dana Wade after the fight on Contender Series kind of echoed that. He said, I saw some mistakes that he made tonight but uh you know, he fought a tough dude. So if you do like that, Matt, well, Clayton Carpenter also sounds just like Michael Chandler and Batman, as I said in the intro. Go listen to some of his quotables. The guy's way too intense for being a 6-0 flyweight, but he's a 6-0 flyweight, and I'm talking about him. So, Matt, when we look at this matchup right here, you have a look at the odds in the fight, and there's not a lot of sites that have them out just yet. 
Clayton Carpenter, a big favorite. Open minus 350, minus 325 or thereabouts. Ronderos, open plus 285. He's a plus 260. So that brings us to the topology votes. We talked a lot about this fight. Both guys' skill sets. For Carpenter... I know he has all of the skill sets that are shiny outside of MMA, but he does mix them into his fights. The only thing is, sometimes he's got to try and figure out his way in some of these fights. And, and against a guy like Ronderos on the outside, that could be difficult. But the topology votes, we'll just go there really, really quick. I'm going to say over under 75% Carpenter due to the inactivity and just the record on the page for Ronderos. I think they'll be well over. You think they're going to be well over? Way over. 461 total votes, 95% Carpenter, 69% by decision. But you've talked a lot about Ronderos. Are you well, gonna... listen, no, I just, I can call myself out. Listen, yeah. you got to be your own worst critic. And I thought Ronderos was going to be really good coming into the UFC. I was really impressed by the film study that I had done going into that David Dvorak fight. But again, hindsight being what it is, and again, with all of those lengthy layoffs, I do worry about him in this matchup. Again, I like the skill set that he has. I think locked away in there deep in the way confines of the closet. There's a good fighter there. I just don't think it's Clayton Carpenter we're going to be able to see it. I do think Carpenter is the much more well-rounded fighter. And if he is able to just find that one avenue where he can have success, I think he'll just be able to stick to the game plan of rinse and repeat. We'll see about the injury and the layoff for Ronderos, not just due to hitting the slopes, but the fact that, yeah, he did have that elbow injury. We'll see how that plays into his striking. But for me, I do have concrete Clayton Carpenter, Monsieur Baton to spin it up. And put his hands in it. Both of us going with Clayton Carpenter, the MMA lab, to get the win. Let us know who you have down below in the comments section. It's a Fight Night Pick special with all of these prospects. We're going to try and hit it out of the park. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. Zimbabwe stand up. We have the second fighter out of Zimbabwe in the UFC following the shoes of Mike Mathitha, a.k.a. Blood Diamond. It's the answer, not Frankie Edgar. Themba Garimbo, Matt, I've said a lot of names to start this video off, but for Garimbo, taking on the ghost, AJ Fletcher, both guys in search of their respective first UFC wins. This is like a Hot Wheels fight, Craig. This just taking two cars and just throwing them against each other on like the living room floor, seeing what's going to happen. That's exactly what I think of when I think about this fight. If you're like me, you buy the cheap ones at the dollar store and you were taking a hammer in the basement at her mom's place. There you go. There's there's you, an inch like that. Craig was like the kid from Toy Story 2 with like the baby doll head on top of the spider legs. It wasn't that far but i don't know if that's a flex i'd just say on the internet well it was fun either way kid. though this really is a car accident i like scrap yards when i look at this matchup though matt for themba garimbo the interesting part of doing the deep dive on his career is listening to the interviews watching the road to efc videos watching his fights over with efc and with fury and uae warriors Garimbo is one of the most interesting prospects, or at least prospects that end up into the UFC that I've seen in a really long time. And I went back to an article in 2020 from the South China Morning Post. It was written by Nick Agkin about an interview that JHK did on Kumite TV. Do we reference JHK? Is Once he a friend twice. of the show? You're darn tootin' because he's the best interview that, viewer that's out there. James Lynch does a good job too, but JHK does a ton of interviews. And for Garimbo, you look at the title from Blood Diamonds to MMA Champ, and that really is the the story. I mean, he fled Zimbabwe for a better life in South Africa. He was there kind of as a refugee. He ends up from Cape Town to Johannesburg, where he's really able to set up and train. And if you look at it for Garimbo and you just consider the fact that, okay, he became the FC welterweight champ. He had bits and pieces of layoffs throughout his career. That's not the whole story. If you go way back through and you do a deep dive on it, he challenged way back at EFC 63 for the lightweight title against American expat and EFC great Dave Mazzani. 
Matt, in that fight, it was a lot of fun to go back and watch it. Now, Mazzani clipped Garimbo many times and ended up finishing him in that fight. And that's kind of a story for Garimbo's overall fight career. Exactly. But if you do look at it for Themba Garimbo, he loses to Dave Mazzani. That's that's fair. He has a loss earlier on in his career in 2015 to Leon Minhart. And then he also has a loss to Hannison Fajera over at UAE Warriors 34, or sorry, 24. And that was a card that included an Andrea Fialyu fight where he took on Stefan Seklich, UFC vet. Ali Al-Kaizi was on that card, UFC vet. We People also got their money's worth that night. Tarek Suleiman. But if you go back and you watch that show, that was Garimbo's last loss. And in that one, he tried to do his balls-to-the-wall striking. And every time he did, he got taken down. And then Garimbo decided to offensively wrestle. And every time he did... He got reversed and taken down. And that's the weird thing about AJ Fletcher. He does have a very athletic style to him, and he will go for a takedown every now and then when he crashes into distance with his striking. But again, it's not like a pretty style of takedowns, like Daniel Cormier versus Derek Lewis, for instance. Like, that was insanely high level, where he's faking out with the clinch going for ankle picks and whatnot. But again, Fletcher's one of these guys that I thought was going to have success at the UFC level. I can be open and honest about that because his style is just like doing a roulette wheel. It's basically 50-50. He's going to land and he can win or he's going to eat a bunch of shots and get really tired because he's throwing a lot of his own strikes and the wheels are really going to fall off the wagon by the time the second round comes around. But that's the thing about a guy like Fletcher. When he wins, is it going to be impressive? Hell yeah, it's going to be impressive. It's going to be all over Twitter. It's going to be like a Joaquin Buckley type of a knockout. But the problem is... He leaves himself wide open for counters. He gets very reckless in the pocket too. And that's something about fighters where, hey, some fighters can fight uh, very well inside the pocket and be intelligent from that position. Whereas Fletcher, he's really just looking for his own offense and not worrying about his defense. And that's what's going to worry me in every single matchup that he has in the UFC. But one thing that I will be curious for... Garimbo, like you said, did fight at lightweight. Now, he is listed as the bigger guy in this division, but Fletcher's a thick guy for the welterweight division. He is built kind of like a Michael Chandler for the division, so I'll just be curious when these guys face off to see what they do look like physically. Well, Fletcher coming into the UFC, it was basically the story by the commentary, the fact that, okay, he fights over on Contender Series, beats Daimiani by first-round finish, who... Fletcher's record coming into the UFC was very, very suspect. It was 50, 58, and 1, and that combines in a 10, 2, and 1 from Daimiani. So it wasn't a good level of competition. He's beating the guys he's expected to beat in ways that you expect him to beat them by. He gets that win. He takes on Matt Semmelsberger, who's fringe rankings in this division right now. No, after his last win, Matt, he's fringe rankings. And when you look at a guy like Fletcher, first round... He looks like a bat out of hell. This guy looks like, okay, he's going to be a future contender. Fletcher's going to be it. Second round, he slows down. Third round, he really slows down. In his last fight, first round comes out hot. And then he starts to give up distance. He gets hit. His hands start to drop. And Los is just pouring on the offense. I don't know what the hockey equivalent of this is. But in basketball, sometimes you just want to run them into the ground. Like, run in transition. That's basically what AJ Fletcher does. The problem is, when you're a team like that, your practice is mainly spent just running a lot so that you condition yourself for it. That's the problem with Fletcher. He burns way too hot earlier on in fights. But that is the thing. I think it is something that he can fix if he just figured out how to regulate his output a little bit better. It's like what I said with Paolo. Costa for years and years. If he can just figure out how to properly figure out his output, he will become a much better fighter. Just at this point of Fletcher's career, he hasn't shown it through either fight in the UFC, and he didn't show it in his follow-up, and that was the really disappointing thing to see. No, and I really do like Ange Lewis and myself. Trains at a Killcliffe FC with some world-class talent, and when you look at it, the third round total strikes against Fletcher... 116 to 14. It was all loose in that matchup. But Matt, for Fletcher, we know he likes to take guys down. He's fast and loose on the feet. He's a Georges St. Pierre type of wrestler because he didn't have the high school or the college background. But 
it's translated well into MMA. If you look at it for Fletcher, though, this is a tough test for him. But likewise for Garimbo, we go down through some of the matchups, Matt. And when Garimbo was able to win the title, EFC 82, he took on Luke Michael, a guy out of Australia who was only 4-3. and three. Michael missed weight for that matchup, so Garimbo was the only one to get the title. And in the matchup, Garimbo gets taken down really early. But then he hits the reversal, and then he ends up with the elbows from the top, the TKO win. Takes on Lyle Karam, who is 6-0. And if I made the mistake right there, Matt, for Luke Michael, you look at the matchup. He was from South Africa. It was Karam who was out of Australia. At least they said he was, even though this also says South Africa. So what the hell do I, I know? Making mistakes, taking liberties. And in that one, he ends up getting the second round finish in the matchup. But if you do go back and you watch the fight, Matt... He gets dropped to a knee by an overhand left. He gets hit. He gets dropped against Fajeda. He struggles with, you know, different parts and parcels of the takedowns. And even when he's tired, he's going for his own takedowns to get taken down. And then in his last matchup, he took on AL Rookie of the Year. You know him as J-Rod, Julio Rodriguez. No, it was a 37-year-old jobber out of Brazil. And in that matchup, he took him down, stayed on top, held guard. Didn't really finish them. There's a show in Canada called Corner Gas. And there's a very good scene in that show where they go, hey, do we really need more police here? Because it's a very small community. And she goes, well, there could be a riot downtown. We don't know. And Buddy goes, well, it's kind of 50-50, you know? It either happens or it doesn't. That's this fight. Either AJ Fletcher wins or Garimbo wins via some crazy finish because AJ Fletcher makes a massive mistake. Because here's the thing. I wish I could break down finer techniques between both of these guys, but it's not like they fight like Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky. It really is a kill or be killed style from both of these guys, and that's why it's such a difficult fight to predict. Fletcher throws volume and hard punches in the first round. Garimbo throws blitzes and long-range attacks, and then he resets. He's Garimbo's got nicer kicks out of the two yeah, guys. Exactly. Fletcher is maybe more creative at piecing everything together, but out of all of it, both guys are finishers to the nth degree, and it's both it's it really is one of the harder fights on this card to try and get a prediction to. And before we started filming that, a look inside baseball with Fight Night Picks, we don't look at the odds until right before the video, and I said, Wow, I can't believe that AJ Fletcher is not only the favorite, but this big of a favorite. He opened minus 160, minus 220 is Fletcher. Garimbo opened at a plus 140, plus 180 right now. I thought just based on Fletcher looking poor in the last five rounds he's had in the UFC's octagon, probably lent credence, but it, I guess it's really going to surprise me with the topology vote, Matt. So over under topology vote, I'm going to say because I think people are going to pick Garimbo. I'm going to say over under 65% Garimbo. I think Fletcher will be the favorite. Apparently, I'm way off. Yeah, look at that. 419 total votes, 74% Fletcher, 73% by decision. So when it came down to this fight, Matt, I thought, okay, I bet you Garimbo's the favorite. I bet the fans are going to take Garimbo. I'm going to be a hipster and take Fletcher. Apparently, I'm not a hipster at all. I'm with the rest of everybody else. Yeah, I also, I don't think it's a hipster pick. If you go back and watch the film on Garimbo, you're not insanely impressed by a 32-year-old making his UFC debut. That's all. There's nothing wrong with saying that, but that's the thing. Just throwing hard. Like, that's what I always hate when we have to do. When there's a title fight where it's very one-sided, we just kind of have to resort to, hey, if everything goes right for the challenger, they may be able to land that one strike because they have great power. For Garimbo, it's not that much of a leap because AJ Fletcher is no championship fighter himself but it really does come down to whoever lands first and can they get the finish right after that and I do think that if Fletcher hurts Garimbo he's going to be able to throw a big flurry afterwards they can probably get the ref to pull him off and Fletcher I, I think if he gets hurt he can at least move a little bit better off of his back I'm not saying he can avoid the TKO completely but I do think he is a little bit more active from poor positions and I think for those reasons I have AJ Fletcher but again the winner of this probably isn't going to go on to fight like Santiago Ponce de Bio next. No eager to 
see both of these guys weigh in on Friday because Fletcher's listed at 5'10", Grimbo's listed at 6 feet. I bet you Grimbo's 5 inches taller than AJ Fletcher, and AJ Fletcher has a fluffer. Matt, this is a big-time matchup. Both of us going with the Ghost, but we could be very wrong. So let us know if you have the answer in the matchup. A big-time one in this welterweight division. Some big-time fights on this card, including Santos taking on Blanchfield in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Nizim Sadikov has an interesting nickname, right? I'd say so. Nope. Chuck Testa. He becomes the UFC's second Black Wolf, making his debut this weekend. Off of Dana White's Contender Series, we have Sarah Longo MMA's... Harry Connick likes the freaking lasagna! Harry Connick likes the freaking lasagna. Nazim Sadikov taking on the phenom, Evan Elder. Matt, for Evan Elder, he's the fourth variation of the phenom to make it into the UFC. I can think of a couple, like you get Kevin Lee's the Motown phenom. You got Vitor Belfort, That's the biggest phenom. And Evan Elder looking to follow in the footsteps. Both guys looking for the respective first UFC wins because for Elvin Elder, he made his debut on very, very short notice, taking on one Preston Parsons. That was on about three days' notice. He replaced Lewis Cosey, moved up to 170, a division he hadn't competed in since 2017. And for Evan Elder, a guy that spent a lot of time with Shamrock before making the plunge into the UFC, had some fights with the LFA as well, and FA. AC. His last one was over Marcus Andruja a little over a year ago. And Andruja was one of those guys that you kind of expect him to get a win over a guy like that to then make it further. And sure enough, so does Elder. So Matt, in this matchup, Elder's one of those guys. He's also out of a big name gym. Killcliffe FC. You see Michael Chandler there. You've seen Gilbert Burns there as well. Elder's one of those guys that, and I can say this for both of these guys, very, very well-rounded, decent sure. striker, the thing that I really like at Evan Elder, kicks to all three levels and he disguises them and masks them very, very well. He goes balls to the wall with pretty well everything that he does, but his cardio usually, usually tends to hold up for exactly. the length of his fight. So I really do like Elder as a prospect. And I have to say this, Matt. I said it last week with Jesus Aguilar. He's taking on Tatsuro Taeda. I'll say the same thing for Evan Elder. If you're below 26 and you decide that the goatee is my look, like, do you drive a minivan and already have two stepkids? You definitely smoke cigarettes in high school. I, I would say that's a fair guarantee, but fights to the parking lot led to your MMA career. Oh, 100%. Undefeated in the streets, bud. I see red. I was really impressed by what I saw in Nazim, though, uh, leading up to his UFC debut, and I'll be very excited to see what version of him we do get coming in uh, to the UFC, because like we had mentioned for Tatsuho Taenga last weekend, I was really impressed by him, but I kind of had to see it before I was really sold, and now I, I think I might be the conductor of his fan club. I seem to bring him up every single week, but for Nazim, I really like his ability to pivot on the inside when he's in the pocket. It's not something we see all that often, and of course, when I bring up a name like Dustin Poirier, people are going to roll their eyes, because that's it to its highest level, but what I really like out of Nazim is he can switch stances while he's throwing combination, and that does give his opponent different looks in the middle of the pocket, which is already a pretty stressful place to be in, which we, we don't really talk about this enough. Guys are really good boxers. Don't just hit hard and have good hand speed. They're really smart fighters too because you have to stay calm and outthink your opponent in the most dangerous area of the fight. I really do think Nazim is able to do that against the guys he's been able to uh, fight up until this point. That's why I'm saying it'll be interesting to see if he can still do those wrinkles and have those keys to his game at the UFC level against a guy like Evan Elder. Both guys do it, but they do it differently. For Sadikov, he's able to blend it into his exactly. strikes. For Evan Elder, we see him as a switch fighter or I have him listed as a switch fighter 
fighter, so does the UFC. When he took on Parsons, he decided to go southpaw, but in a lot of his fights, when he's orthodox, he has a ton of success. When he switches southpaw... The defense isn't there. Yeah, and it's almost to wait for the counters, then go for his own offense. And for Elder, up a weight class... Parsons is a big welterweight, and we know Preston Parsons. He had a fight against Mike Perry years ago. He is, well, a gym owner. I mean, listen, owner. he's a guy representing the You know my rule, though. When we bring up his personality before any of his skills, it's probably not a great no, sign. No, I mean, Parsons owns a gym, jiu-jitsu specialist, <laughs> has good wrestling, big guy for the division. And Elder struggled against that on three days' notice. You're not going to be able to game plan for stuff like that. But when I do look at it in this overall matchup, Matt... Both guys very good strikers. Both guys similar in ways. But when I look at a guy like Sadikov and you look at him strike against some of the guys that he's faced on the regional scene, combined opponent record, 21-7-1. That's pretty damn good. And then if you look at it, yeah, against Hassan Zada over on Contender Series, he was a minus-175 favorite. But you watch all of these fights, and I mean, holy smokes. It's the talent. That's it's what it the is. talent, the hand speed, and even the win that he had before he was on Dana White's Contender Series against Borshig. Referee Joe Solis, Texas's own favorite son. It's the hand speed and the combinations that he's able to throw and mixing his power shots into some of these. That and that's why we're about Evan Elder. I agree with you on the point that he does have very good kicks from the outside, but it's really hard to throw kicks when you're in boxing range with your opponent. And that's what I think he's going to struggle with in this matchup. If Elder can poke the jab out there, use some long-range weapons to just keep distance throughout this matchup, then yes, I think he can have success. I just think that once it does enter the pocket, that's when he will be a half-step behind, because like you had mentioned, Sadikov's hand speed is not second to none, of course, but he has very speedy hands on the inside, throws in combination, not just single shots, too, and the good thing about a fighter who throws in combination is, it's hard to be off-balance when you throw in combination. When you just load up on a single shot, when you miss, you become off-balance and you open up counter windows for your opponent. When you throw in combination, though, you're always thinking with the next shot that's coming and it keeps you very disciplined within uh, your striking style and that's what I've been really impressed with uh, Sadikov up until this point but again I can't stress this enough I think we will learn a lot more about both of these guys to be completely honest after this matchup because like you said fighting up a division on short notice it's really hard to get a feel for how good an athlete is this is back to his more natural division against a guy who is making his debut so you worry about some of those jitters I think this is a really fun fight to be had and I think it's a close one on paper we'll too. see for Sadikov if he decides to make the same move that his team teammate Rob Doshvili did and tattoo the flag onto his chest because they won't let you walk out with your flag anymore. So Marab taking the plunge with Georgia. Sadikov out of Brooklyn area in the States, but also representing Azerbaijan. Matt, when we have a look at the odds in the matchup, Sadikov is the favorite, minus 170 against the bigger man, plus 140, Evan Elder. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us, they are to you. I'm going to say, like, odds are close, and they're closing in closer to par. I'm going to say over under 67.5% Sadikov, but the fans have been wild. Out there. And that's why I think he's going to be a big favorite in this. Yeah. 460 total votes. Sorry for my delayed reaction. 93% Sadikov, 68% by knockout for the 7% that have Elder, 43% by decision, 33% by knockout. I think that gap's going to get narrowed, but I, I think the odds are going to continue to close into par. But when I look at a guy like Elder Matt, we saw it all together on the regional scene again. You go look at his knockout win by knee over Padilla. It is a great, just a highlight because the fight's really quick. His win over Marcus Andruja. Andruja was 37 years old. He's not in his 60. And he took the fight on short notice, and Elder did look really good. We want you to see, you know, we want to see you get wins over guys that you should get wins over. And he represents a good gym, even though he's on the small stage. But I think Sadikov, it's just the hand speed advantage and the fact that he can rip those combinations and get out of that pocket before Elder's going to have a success. For those reasons, I have Sadikov in the matchup. But if Elder gets the win... 
boy, wouldn't that be something. And I think this can be a really fun fight. I hope this does kind of turn into one of those fight of the night style fights, because if that's the case, both guys get tested. And that's kind of the perfect scenario for any prospect that you think has any level of hype behind them. I do have Sadika for all the reasons that you had mentioned. I just think he has some of those high level intangibles that you look for when you look at fighters who might be able to actually break into the rankings one day. And that's the thing. In the lightweight division, you got to win six, seven, eight fights in a row for one of those big opportunities. So it'll be interesting to see how both guys' careers develop after this point, but I also have Nazim. Big time matchup coming up this weekend at Lightweight. Both of us going with Nazim Sadikov, the Black Wolf taking on Evan Elder. Some big time matchups on the card, including Santos versus Blanchfield in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. The fans out there, they want this fight at light heavyweight. We have aging legends. We have a millionaire taking on a former title challenger, Felipe Linz, the monster. Well, he's the monstro taking on OSP, Ovin St. Preux. And in this matchup, Matt, sing me a song, you're the piano man, is what the folks are oh, saying. Oh, I was thinking more like, oh, every time I close my eye. Do you think Felipe Linz is a big Bruno Mars fan after winning that million dollars? I don't know. But what I do know is this is the third time that this friggin' fight has been matched up. So I'm going to tell you the story. At UFC 282, Alexander Gustafsson was supposed to take on Ovin St. Preux. Ovin St. Preux took to his OnlyFans. Let that set in, that dramatic pose. And then he said, pause? Gustafson, no, pose, I'm speaking French. Gustafson is out of the matchup, Felipe Linz is in. Linz is then out, and then in steps Antonio Tricoli. Couldn't get a visa, so the UFC cut Tricoli. <laughs> so unfortunate. Fat chance, bud, see you later. So in the matchup, Matt, they decided, hell, we'll just rebook it for a third time. The people have been asking for this, so now they get it. So for Felipe Linz, Matt, I'm going to throw up his topology page. It makes me sick to my stomach. Since he won that million dollars... Fifty Shades of Grey is what you'd call it. By beating Cuddlebear Copeland, he was supposed to fight Satoshi Ishii the next year. That falls out. Then he's supposed to fight Andre Arlovsky. Then they rebooked that fight. I'm doing this from memory, folks, because we're not looking at it. Then he fights Arlovsky, who's a teammate, and loses. Then he fights Tanner Bozer, and he loses. Then they rebook him with Ben Rothwell three times. That fight doesn't happen. And then it just snowballs from there. Now... Linz did fight Marcin Prakniau almost a year ago. It was about 10 months ago. And in that fight, he loses the first round because Prakniau strikes from the outside. And in round two and round three, Linz decides to grapple, bring the complete package. Linz convincingly wins the second round and the third round. And it looked like the guy that we saw glimpses of when he was with the PFL. Now, he was monstro with PFL. He was damaging. He was finishing guys. And it was weird because for Linz, he had that PFL season at heavyweight. He had good career success at heavyweight. And he hadn't fought in the light heavyweight division since. He lost to Kleber Silva and Vadim Nemkov back-to-back with Bellator 2015-2016. And I know that like Silva is what Silva is. But Nemkov, Bellator light heavyweight champ. So for Linz, it was weird. We didn't know what he was going to look like with the weight cut. Now we've kind of forced it over to Vince St. Preux. The guy's got seven performance bonuses in the UFC and a fight of the night, if you can believe it. In the UFC, 14 and 11 since debuting in 2013 against Jean Vellante. Six and one with Strike Force. You might go, who'd he lose to with Strike Force if he went six and one? And I go, hey, just an MMA Hall of Famer, Gegard Mousasi. Like, dream. Any Prime. any different organization, Strike Force, UFC, Bellator, Gegard Mousasi's made an imprint. He's got a fingerprint there. But, Matt, 
With OSP, inconsistency, you never know what you're going to get. And not really the greatest run of his career now. I think we do know what we're going to get, though, at this point. Now, it's unfortunate to say because I really enjoyed OSP, especially when he was in his prime. He's a unique fighter, right? He's like Chris Boucher of MMA. He throws head kicks and he's good at submissions. Like If Chris Boucher throws a head kick in an NBA game, but he's no, getting in Chris trouble. Boucher shoots threes and blocks shots and like looks like a weird spooky goblin man when he runs. Like It doesn't make any sense. OSP also doesn't really make any sense as a fighter. Like You wouldn't teach a fighter to fight like OSP, even though OSP has fought for a UFC interim title and did fairly well, all things considered, against John Jones. The problem is, that was all the way back at UFC 197. The poster's here somewhere. I think but it's back that's there. That's what you guys have to get. That was almost a hundred UFC events ago, so we're coming up on almost a decade since OSP had fought for a title. It's just been a really long time since OSP has been one of the relevant players in the division, and this is going to sound like a little bit of an autopsy of his uh, resume a bit, but even when he was in his prime, he was never really able to beat those top three, top four, top five guys. He was always a very difficult fight for anybody outside of the very elite of the elite, but go back to OSP. He fought Glover Teixeira, wasn't able to beat him. He struggled that was a fight Ryan, of the night. Struggled with Ryan Bader. I just mean, the top guys in the division, even when he was in his prime, he did struggle with some of those guys, but think about his after title fight, sort of career resurgence, knocked out Corey Anderson. He was looking really good there for a while. I just think that at this stage of his career, he's lost one of the few things that made him kind of unique, and that's the output. Even in the Shogun fight, we talked about this a lot. Hey, Shogun might have a chance. He didn't look completely terrible against OSP, but the problem was OSP wasn't really throwing that much back at so, Shogun. So I just worry about how much OSP is going to be able to throw in terms of volume and damaging strikes against Lin. So first thing, you said OSP struggling against top five competition. Well, guess what? He's fighting Felipe Lin. So well, not a top I five fighter. But the point is, OSP's almost 40 years old at this point of his career. Second part of this, OSP fought Shogun twice. So it's worth kind of the, the denotation. So the first time was a main event in brazil he skipped uberlandia it was and he japan. knocked him out it what it was in japan no it was in brazil okay. knocked him out in that matchup so osp wins that fight and then in the rematch mat the fans boo one of the worst fights of all time the second round the third round the later stages of the first round it was one of the worst fights you're gonna see so matt i mean for osp it's been a weird run for felipe Lins, he can grind on the majority of the fighters that he takes on the trouble is can he grind against a guy who gets his back up against the fence behind the black line and find a ton of success in this fight? I guess that's the biggest question. Probably, because he's just there to be hit. That's my issue with OSP at this stage of his career. He doesn't really move left to right all that well, and I think for those reasons he is going to struggle, because again, if he did have that great lateral movement, he can catch Linz walking into some of his shots. Remember what Jamal Hill did to OSP? Like, OSP was trying to set up what he used to do. He it did was, it to hey, Menafield not that long exactly, ago. Exactly. Put my back to the cage, be awkward, move in a strange manner, and make him make a mistake. I just don't think OSP at 205 either is the best decision and I know that's weird because Linz is the heavyweight moving down but even with OSP like when he weighs in for his heavyweight fights he's like 240 he's not a guy who just doesn't cut weight like I really do think OSP has to get into a really good shape to get down to 205 and I'm just curious how much that affects him at 39 years of age because again with his style he needs good cardio he needs good output and he has to be able to put a lot behind his shots even late in fights again go back to the Corey Anderson fight I know he had hurt Anderson in the first round and the second round but he probably still lost both those rounds just due to his lack of of output, but again, he's got that great checkmate with some of his kicks, so maybe if OSP can implement his kicks, but the problem is we don't really see him go to the body or the head as much with that technique anymore, and that was one of his best shots for a long so, time. So, Lin's open minus 130, he's a minus 230 favorite now, OSP open plus 110, plus 185, we have a look at the topology votes, Matt, surprised us there to you, I'm gonna say over under 67.5% Lin's. 
I'll say over because they've been pretty one-sided lately. Oh, they're under. So 462 total votes, 59% Lynn, 67% by decision. For the 41% that have OSP, 50% by decision, 18% by submission, 24% by knockout. Those aren't perfect numbers. Matt, Felipe Lynn's in all the black lines of fights that have fallen out, all the not medically cleared to compete stuff, weirds me out, and I hate his cut to 205 even more than I hate the cut for OSP. I hate that it takes away from his chin. I hate that he had to resort to... Not that I hate it. I actually like it out of his style. But he grappled, grimy, grind type of style. Round two, round three. And that usually would show it against a guy like OSP. But I look like OSP for the jiu-jitsu. Now I'm struggling with my grasp of the English language. And I do like the counter shots out of OSP in the matchup. I'm taking Ovin St. Pru against my better judgment. As a pretty big underdog now. And I think St. Pru's going to go out there and kind of shock the world for just one more time. I just think unless he gets a stoppage, it's going to be really difficult to go out there and win a decision. On the back foot, Linz is a guy who will be aggressive, at least in this matchup with his high guard. I think for those reasons, it's going to leave a good imprint on the judges. And that's why I do have Felipe Linz. Now again, the winner of this isn't going to go on to then fight Volkan Ustamir or anybody really high up in this division. We hope not. But it should be a fun fight for as long as it lasts. Again, if this fight is fought at like its highest level, we should have Felipe Linz walking forward, throwing good boxing combinations, going for an odd takedown here and there, and OSP throwing good counter shots off the back foot. So hopefully that's the fight that we get. Big time matchup, light heavyweight division. I'm going OSP, you're going Monstro. We have a big time card with six debuting fighters, including a guy with 3.9 million Instagram followers, Hussein Ashkabab, putting that undefeated record up against Pretty Boy. Jamal Emmer should be a great fight. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. The much anticipated, long awaited UFC debut of a man who's changed his nickname. It used to be The Lion. It's now Nocho. 23 and 0. Hussein Ashkabov. And this is a guy with 3.9 million Twitter followers taking on a guy with less than 6,000. It's pretty boy Jamal Emmer. a guy who's fought a who's who, a much higher level of competition. Exactly. And if you disagree with that, one guy's beaten Corey Sandhagen, and one guy's best win is former Cage Warriors title challenger Donovan Desme. But Matt, when we do look at this for Ashkabov, got to start in MMA just a couple of weeks after his 17th birthday. He's a combat sambo pro. He's won tournaments. He was a 2011 world champion at Yukoto Karate. And it really does come together if you do look at Ashkabov's overall fighting style when he does fight some of these guys now again he was a champ over at wwfc in two different weight classes he does have a brother kashan ashkabov who fights in mma now bellator fans might not like the other ashkabov because he just doesn't show up to fight sometimes allegedly he didn't show up for the weigh-ins in his last fight but when you do look at Ashkabov and the way that he takes on the guys that he's facing, it can be a lot of single shots, but they are very, very flashy. And when they land, they really do not just make contact, but they drop these guys down. And for Ashkabov, his flashy flare type of striking, it does open him up to, okay, well, maybe he gets taken down. Ah, ah, ah. He takes down his opponents off of his flashy strikes. So for Ashkabov, I know a lot of people are going to like it. He's got one of the longest undefeated streaks in just overall MMA. The comparisons are going to be with, there for him and Habib. But he represents the world's largest country by landmass, Luxembourg. Yes. 
and France. So very interesting for Ashkabov. Ashkabov has a boxing record, and I don't say that to be disparaging of it whatsoever. It's just the case. He's beaten a lot of guys that we should have beat on the way to the UFC. But the thing has to be said, did he look unskilled in those matchups? Well, no. not at all. The man looked extremely skilled, and they are skills that I think can translate to the UFC, but I'm glad you kind of started it this way. Those single shots are very flashy, and they're very impressive when they do land, but prospects of his ilk tend to go one of two ways in the UFC. Either all that flash really works out and it can translate perfectly, or a guy like Jamal Emmers, who isn't the flashiest of fighters, isn't the most, uh, doesn't have the most fanfare, I would say, isn't even a guy who's in the rankings or anything, can just go out there with his lunch pail and just kind of nine to five him, if you will. The fundamentals really do help, and I will be curious to see if Emmers can make him pay for some of the flashiness of Ashkabov, because even in the last fight of Jamal Emmers, and that was a really long time ago, which is kind of wild, like, I always think Sabatini versus Emmers was like two months ago, but no, that was almost a year ago now. I, I do think Emmers can have some, some of the similar success he had against Sabatini. Crack him with big shots. We saw him drop Sabatini. The problem is, what does Emmers do after that? Because once he does start to get into some of these more elongated grappling sequences, we have seen, uh, I think, just a lapse in judgment because that's the thing with Emmers. Sometimes his grappling looks really dominant. He can get into the top position, out-scramble guys, and be heavy. Oh. But the problem is, defensively, uh, especially against a guy like Ashkabov, I could see him struggle in that area. Yeah, for Emmers, if you go back and look at it, it was kind of like a long, lunging uppercut that's able to the land. It is the Marge Simpson that lands against Sabatini. Patini and knocks him right back and they don't consider it a knockdown oddly enough it but is, he then hops right into top mount then Sabatini gives his back Emers has the hooks in with his leg he's trying to get the choke in they reverse again he gets on top and then all of a sudden we're Shawn Michaels against Ric Flair at what was it Wrestlemania 24 in front of the fans Sad and the family stuff. And Shawn Michaels is retiring him with the figure four. Well, yep. eventually he landed Sweet, sweet Chin music. But there was a figure four there. And Emmers lets out a blood-curdling scream. And then after, Michael Bisming's like, hey. The heel hook is a far more devastating technique. And unfortunately for Emmers, he may be out for a while now. He could be out for a long time after and this one. Been. And boy, was he ever. That fight against Pat Sabatini almost a year and a half ago. And yeah, it does seem like it was yesterday. But the craziest part about Emmers... He fought Giga Chikadze in a fight where he's supposed to fight Mavzar Evlaev. He fought Vince Kashero in a fight where he's supposed to fight Timur Valiev. He's gotten ready for a guy in Evlaev who's trained a lot with Ashkabov at Tiger Muay Thai. He got ready in a guy like Valiev who fights like Hussein Ashkabov. A lot of spinning stuff, a lot of wrestling from Valiev. It's just for me when I look at this one, Matt, Ashkabov, very polished, apparently a Dallas Stars fan from his Instagram. Who goes to the States and then decides, you know what? Jason Roberts and Joe Pavelski, they're the boys for me. Like the Mavericks, I get it, but the Stars are a weird pick. I'm going to wear a hockey jersey. I want to be warm in California. But when I look at it for Ashkabob, Matt, again, I say how special he is, and his best win is Donovan Desme. Even if you go back and watch that fight against Desme, first thing that he lands in the first round, it's an overhand right, and he's catching a kick at the exactly. same time, and drops Desme down, and then he's able to kind of wear on him. And he wears, and he wears, and he wears. Third round, it's like the, the Paul Craig spin kick to Alonzo Menafield. What does Menafield do? Overhand right drops him. What does Ashkabov do? Grabs the kick, picks him up, slams him. So I do like the cardio of Ashkabov now. Guy that's 23-0, you think all those fights are three-rounders? No, he's got some two-rounders in there. And he's not necessarily a premier finisher, which is one of those things that, again, could go one of two ways in the UFC. Now... Have I been impressed by Ashkabov? 100%. Oh, I yeah. think this tape study, A, it was really easy to find the tape. It's out there very easily, and you can find a lot of these matchups. Did he beat a lot of guys that he really should have beat? 110%. But I do like the fact Tiger Muay Thai, American top team for the training, for Jamal Emers. 
Pinnacle MMA with Bobby Green and some some high-level names that are there. But MMA Gold Team and Team Alpha Male as well. You're only going to sharpen that sword that is your wrestling. The time away, who knows? Still in his athletic prime at 33. He could still pull out a really good win. And favored in some of these matchups as well. Even with that split decision loss that he has to Giga Chikadze. Who went on to do really important things. So when we look at the overall... Um, you know, kind of just this fight. We have a look at the odds. This fight was announced back on February 2nd. So still fresh in the minds of MMA fans. And the thing that we did mention, Matt, ashkabov has been like, you know, in and around the UFC for a while. He's supposed to debut back in 2021. That fight did not materialize. He was supposed to take on Joe Anderson Brito. He Burns, was supposed yeah. to take on Herbert Burns. We were about to make the video for that back last July. We were both excited for that one, too. Yeah, and it didn't happen. So it ended up Burns fought Bill Algio and then retired due to the exhaustion of the fight. But when you look at this one, Matt, in terms of the odds, Ashkabob open minus 235. He's in minus 153 right now. Emmer's open plus 200. Plus 128. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to say over under 70% Ashkabob. I think the fans are there. I think they'll be over. I think they're going to be over. They're way over. 259 total votes. 93% Ashkabob. 71% by submission. For the 7% that have Emmer's, 84% by decision. Do you have... The overwhelming fan favorite, the guy with the IG follows, Ashkabov. I do, but I have to bring up a rule that I talked about with Cyril gone forever. And it was, hey, I'm going to be way more confident in this guy once I see him in a very difficult fight. And that's what I'm going to say about Ashkabov. I think I'll win this one. And I think it will be difficult, don't get me wrong. But I'll have a much better idea as to just what his ceiling is and how far he can go in this division after I see this fight with Jamal Emers. Because the thing about Emers is, even if he's not in his prime, even if you don't think the highest of him, he's a well-rounded fighter who's got pretty good cardio. So he's not just going to roll over and it'll just be first. First round submission win or knockout win for Ashkabov. So I do have Ashkabov, the undefeated fighter, but I think this will be a very difficult test for him. And that's probably what he needs if we're being completely honest. Now, Ashkabov hasn't fought since what, 2020? So it's been a really long time. The last guy that he fought, it's worth mentioning, Yusuf Haidi Vizingiv, who was 3-0 at the time. But my point is he hasn't fought in about three years. I expect a guy who's going to be a few days after his 28th birthday to only get better, not yeah. to regress, rest on his laurels, just have the same skill set. I think he's going to be able to improve upon what he's had. The one thing that I don't necessarily love in a matchup against Jamal Emers is Ashkabov stands with his hands really low out of that karate stance. Then he's able to open up, throw his spins, then work into his takedowns. And once he gets you into the clinch, he's not necessarily looking to land knees or to land elbows. He's looking to then drop levels, and take you down. And I like those things out of Ashkabob, but not against a guy like Jamal Emers. I think the meat and potatoes, the length of a guy like Emers is one of the bigger guys in this featherweight division. Do you worry about the injury, though? I do worry about the knee injury, but not necessarily in okay. this fight against Ashkabob. I do like the movement on the outside, and I think the volume out of a guy like Emers is just going to wear as this fight goes on. So for me, I like the underdog in Jamal Emers. I, I hope we get to see the pretty boy that we saw coming into the OC. Because, Matt, Who Jamal Emers, low-key for a guy that only has three fights in the UFC. We haven't seen him in a year and a half. He was a guy that in videos, we talked about him all the damn time. I will say this though. This split decision to Giga Chikadze looks way better on paper than the fight actually was. Like neither guy looked very good in that fight, honestly. And Giga has looked significantly better since that. So I would never want to see that rematch for Emers' sake. But it should be a really fun fight again. I just hope that Emers brings out the best version of Askabov so we all have a better opinion of him afterwards. Matt going with Nocho, who was once the lion. I'm going with Pretty Boy. He stuck with it, but his knee probably looks like Greg Odin's after a little bit it's a big time matchup coming up this weekend can't wait for it and some big time fights left on this card might have win a silva's taking on lena landsberg you're not going to want to miss it in the bantamweight division keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's get into it
Coming up this weekend in the women's bantamweight division, this is a weird bucket of muscles type of fight. We have the elbow queen, Alina Landsberg, taking on Shitara Maeda Bueno Silva. A couple of interesting gyms going at it. You got Redline taking on American Top Team, where Buena Silva is now based. And this one does hold significance because it's number 12 versus number 14. But if you look at it for Maeda Buena Silva, comes in off Dana White's Contender Series, picks up a really nice win there. She fights uh, Mara Mero Barella to a win. She has a majority decision against Montana De La Rosa, lost to Manoff Yoro. But the last two fights, a win over Wu Yanan and a win over Stephanie Edgar, have really netted her a lot of praise. And for Buena Silva, just in the UFC, she's already had two fight of the night. So really interesting that way for her. Her last time out was the Digital she tapped did she not tap against Edgar she definitely tapped so for Buena Silva another opportunity to kind of advance the chains for a football term and if you look at it for her she's already 31 she's getting the move going she's got the record kind of like Amanda Lemos who was like a 9-1-1 9-2-1 really kind of getting into the nitty-gritty whereas for Landsberg and the reason I say it's a weird bucket of muscles it's not muscles it's the muscles that you eat and steam why is it a weird bucket of muscles fight because lena landsberg is a few days away from her 41st birthday she's lost three fights in a row one to bellator sarah mcmahon one to penny kanzad in the rematch where listen landsberg won the second round and against carol hosa majority decision loss but the only reason it's that way is because one of the judges scored a round for landsberg the other two scored all three rounds for hosa but Hosa lost a point in the middle round due to an illegal knee. So realistically, most thought Hosa won all three rounds. So for Landsberg, she's really on a bad losing streak. And not much can be said. But the elbows are still there. And she's still ticking. So she can make it tough. Are they though? Like that's the problem with Lena Landsberg. I, uh, this fight to me is like a seesaw. At one point, I thought very highly of Lena Landsberg. And I thought not that much of Meyer Brandon Silver for being honest. This is my opinion of both these fighters now. My Wayne Silva's looked really good as of late, and it looks like she's been able to turn the corner, not only with who she's fighting, because of course level of opposition matters with a fighter's record, but how she's been able to go out there and demonstrate her own skills. My Wayne Silva looks like a well-rounded fighter now. I think that's fair to say. She mixes in her takedowns with her striking. She's a good Muay Thai fighter on the outside. Her output's not great. She doesn't have top-tier power by any means, but still, she has good technique, decent volume. The problem is, there's just one area where Bueno Silva can struggle with this fight. If Lita Landsberg is able to do that clinch-heavy game plan where she puts Buena Silva up against the clinch and really wears on her heavily. I think Lena can win this fight, but that's the big issue. Buena Silva is the smaller fighter in this fight. I know it has them listed as having similar heights and similar reaches. Lena Lansberg has fought at featherweight, though, in the past and has fought at bantamweight for the majority of her career. She fought Chris Cyborg. That's in her what... UFC debut. Exactly. So for Lansberg, she's a lot more used to going out there and having those physical, grinding sty style of fights against much bigger fighters, and I think that will be important in this matchup because, again, I don't think Lena Lansberg can go out there and outstrike her from the outside from this point of her career. She might be able to have some success with the wrestling, but again, I do worry about the submission ability of Bueno Silva if it hits the mat. I just think Landsberg could do a good job of holding her up against the cage, and you hate for that to be the one big X factor for her to win the fight, but I think Silva's the much more active fighter from the outside. She has better kicks. I can back it up. And on the mat, she's way more dangerous with her own submission so, ability. Landsberg, IFMA 2008-2012 world champion of Muay Thai. She fought Valentina Shevchenko in Muay Thai. 37-11 and 11 was her Muay Thai record. That's all very impressive. And it translated into her MMA career and getting her wins. Now, in the UFC, debuted against Chris Cyborg back in 2016. Landsberg is 4-6. and six. Okay, so 
Four and six. That's a 10-fight UFC career. That's not that bad. She was favored to win one of 10 fights. She was uh, a winner against Lucia Pudzilova at a minus 345. And every other fight, she's been more than a two-to-one dog. So in three of those, she's cashed. You like that. Yeah, that's fun. But when you look at it, Matt, she's had less than 50 significant strikes in all but two of her fights in the UFC. Her fight against Tanya Evinger landed 50 significant strikes. And her fight against Lucia Pudzilova, where she was favored to win. Her strike differential is a negative 1.16. And it's 2.7 strikes per minute minute to 3.86 received that's well below ufc average with all that being said though i still agree with the game plan of landsberg can go out there not throw any significant strikes and hold bueno silva up against the cage and have success to that level again it's not going to be the most aesthetically pleasing fight but landsberg is the much more stronger fighter especially in that clinch if she can get the double overhooks and lock down on her i think bueno silva's gonna have a hard time going for some of those trips and some of those clinch takedowns bueno silva much more active striker on the feet but receives more damage numerically in the ufc 4.23 strikes uh, landed per minute significant to 5.01 received and if you look at it she can struggle if she gets crowded with a lot of volume you can see Buena Silva in some of these fights where I, I don't know maybe it was just the fact that she didn't have a lot of pro fights coming into the UFC just not that kind of experience but trying to figure out the fight IQ and changing the game plan on the fly if you threw a lot of volume you could kind of cause her issues okay. and if you mixed in the threat of the takedown that's where Buena Silva would really get away from her game plan you can really stifle it now Landsberg's not going out there and trying for takedowns against any of these women in this division, nor do I expect her to against somebody like Buena Silva. So in a pure stand-up battle, I kind of already tipped my hand at this point. So we have a look at the odds in the matchup, Matt. Landsberg is not favored to win this fight, as she normally is not. So Buena Silva minus 400, Landsberg plus 300. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to say over under 92.5% Buena Silva. I'll say over. I'm going to say over. 96% Buena Silva on 459 total votes, 73% by decision for the 4% that have Landsberg, 80% by decision. If Landsberg wins, I think she wins by decision. I think Maeda Buena Silva wins this fight because she can strike better from the outside and she's done a better job of closing the pocket, getting out of the pocket, and trying to avoid some of those clinch situations in a fight like this. Uh, I don't love Buena Silva getting out of the pocket. She's good at getting inside of it. I just don't think it's going to be a big issue in this fight. Again, Lena Landsberg's not a big kicker. She's going to follow her opponent quite a bit too, so Buena Silva just doesn't walk straight backwards. It's going to be really hard for Landsberg to cut off the cage and really lay in meaningful offense. And for all those reasons, I do favor Buena Silva. And again, I like her leg kicks from the outside too. I think those are really going to be able to help her slow down some of the forward movement of Lena Landsberg. So I do have Silva as the pick. Both of us going with American Top Team's own Shitara Buena Silva to get the win. Matt, coming up this weekend, lots of UFC debuts. Jamal Pogues taking on Josh Parisian. That's an interesting fight in the heavyweight division. You're not going to want to miss that. And the rest of the action, keep it locked in with Fighting Apex. We always say, let's get into it. And the winner of this contest will be the UFC's all-time winner. You heard it from Bruce, the all-time winningest winner in UFC history. It's A-10, Jim Miller. He's the fights leader. He's the wins leader. He's taking on the great ape. Alexander Hernandez, a guy who made it close to the bottom of our list on the MMA nickname tier list. The Great was his original nickname. He added Ape onto the end of it. And he's been anything but a great ape since he's changed his nickname. Because for Hernandez in his last two fights, took on Renato Moicano, got finished in that fight. He got rocked, he got socked, he got choked out. And his last time out against Billy Quarantillo, you look at the number on the page or you look at the letters and they read out, well, he lost by TKO, standing TKO knockout loss. But... You got to go back and watch the fight because Hernandez, it was his first fight in all of them. Now he's had 19. 
at featherweight. So it was, I'm moving down. I'm going to make the plunge. I'm going to be a featherweight now. He dipped his toes in that pool. It was too cold. He's going back up. Papa Bear likes the oatmeal. How many references can I chuck out there? But Fernandez, Matt, he had a ton of success in that fight against Quarantillo. With his wrestling, with his pressure, with some of his striking, he did get tagged by the jab in the first round and got bloodied up. In the second round, the grappling was going really well. And then halfway through the second round, his hands dropped down close to his waist and he got tuckered right out. And that was when Quarantillo was able to really just pound away. And I've always felt like that was the story about Alexander Hernandez. It's not that he's not skilled because he is an extremely skilled fighter. If you just break down, is he a good boxer? Well, yeah, he can jab. He has good power. Not great defensively, of course, but those are things you can work on. He has high level wrestling. The cardio is not great. And I guess that's the thing I do want to focus on. Some fighters can fight in a very similar manner when they're tired as to when they have full cardio. They do all the same stuff. It, it just might not be as fast. Alexander Hernandez becomes a completely different fighter once he does become tired, though. And a lot of his stoppage losses aren't just because he's getting hit by these big bombs from the outside. If you go back to the Cowboy fight, Alexander Hernandez is burning really hot. And that's something they talk a lot about in uh, boxing. It's, hey, are they really sweaty when they're walking out? Like, did they really get a good sweat on? Are they really hot when they get into the ring just so that they're ready for it? Hernandez is the type of guy who burns so hot at the start of the fight that you do worry about how much he's going to have left in the tank when the second and the third fight comes around. Because to give us a little bit of credit, that's what we said... Uh, all week long during that Billy Q fight, it was, hey, can Hernandez go out there and out-wrestle him? Uh, of course he can. He is the better wrestler. But is that a sustainable game plan for a guy like Alexander Hernandez cutting an extra 10 pounds from his body? And of course it wasn't. And it'll be really interesting to see how he move or how he looks moving back up in weight because... And you probably know where I'm going with this. Dan Hooker is another guy who had a very similar drop down to 145 as Alexander Hernandez. It was, hey, it's not going great for you at 155. Now, although for Dan Hooker, he had reached much higher heights than Hernandez. But you get the idea. You can't beat some of these top-level guys. Let's try to go back down and wait, and we'll see how you look. I'm going to be curious to see if that took anything extra out of Alexander Hernandez. Because we talked about Anthony Pettis on one of the earlier videos on this. Anthony Pettis is fighting Roy Jones Jr. on Gamebred FC4. I can't believe that's happening, but it's a real thing. And you know what was the wild thing about Roy Jones Jr.? He went up to fight for the heavyweight title, he screwed up his body composition, and he was never the same when he came back down. I'm not saying Alexander Hernandez's weight cut will have those type of extreme effects on him, but you do worry about a guy just trying to switch weight classes and being very reactionary after all these wins. I'll tell you what about Anthony Pettis. He's yoked for that fight, man. Sergio looks scared, but... If you look at it for both of these guys from 2019 on, though, like, you consider for a guy like Hernandez, and we'll go through the wins and the losses really quick. He loses in that fight against Cowboy Cerrone. Bad blood. You know, you had already alluded to the fact, like, he burned pretty hot in the fight. Then he goes out and beats Francisco Trinaldo after a little bit of a layoff. It's a hometown fight in Texas. And Trinaldo was still 45 when that fight happened, and that fight happened three years ago. The judges be the judges. He loses to Drew Dober, beats Chris Gertzmacher, loses to Moises, beats Breeden, loses to Moicano and to Quarantillo. So he beats guys you think he should beat... And he loses the guys that, listen, it's a competitive fight, and he's going to... And that's my question for you. At this stage of Jim Miller's career, and at this stage of Alexander Hernandez's career, isn't... Like, I still feel like Hernandez is better than the last few guys Jim Miller's beat. And that's why I don't think this is such an easy fight to no, predict. No, because I think recent history would suggest, oh, Jim Miller, he still kind of resembles the fighter he used to. He can still take a big shot, give a big shot. Whereas Hernandez has looked somewhat brittle as of late, but I still feel like this version of Hernandez, I, I don't care if you have the lowest opinion of him you possibly can, he's still probably better than the version of well, Cowboy and, we saw and, against And that's Miller. it. Like, for Jim Miller, the same thing can be said as I just said for mm -hmm. uh, Hernandez. Now, Hernandez loses 
losing record. Jim Miller, 6-3 and three since 2019. And it bears going through because out of all of that, three performance bonuses and a fight of the night, he beat Jason Gonzalez, Clay Guida, Roosevelt Roberts, Eric Gonzalez, Nicholas Mata, and Donald Cerrone. And the only guy that I really, really didn't think he was going to beat was Nicholas Mata, the southpaw boxing on the outside. Mata's fast hands. He's got power. His nickname's Iron because he likes Mike Tyson. And all of a sudden, it's Jim Miller going out there and cold cocking him and knocking him out. And the losses to Joe Selecki, where he got out grappled and held, even though it was a close fight. Vince Pichel, who out-wrestled Jim Miller. And then the other losses out there, Hot Sauce Holtzman, who outstruck him from the outside. So if you do consider it, this was originally supposed to be Gabriel Benitez. Hernandez takes his fight on short notice. And it bears being said, folks, Hernandez's loss against Billy Quarantillo was December 10th. So two months and a week and a day since he got knocked out. Now, it was a standing TKO knockout, but his face was bloodied up. He got hit hard as it went on. I don't like guys coming off of knockout losses in, like, like five, six months is good. Two months is bad. Well, that's the thing, too. How much, how much time do you take off after that fight? Because, like, you can't take major blows to the head after you lose via TKO. At least you're not supposed the to. swelling's gotta go down. The swelling has to go down. But, okay, so just imagine there's at least one week at a minimum that he has to take off. So you're dealing with less than two months and he just knows that he has to take this fight within a week. Like, there's a lot of question marks for Alexander Hernandez and that's why it's a weird spot for him to find himself at this stage of his career because four years ago, no one really would have thought Hernandez would just sort of be this middling kind of fighter on the outside of the division still trying to find his footing, taking a difficult fight against Jim Miller because it's unfortunate because Jim Miller's still really good at this stage of his career, but he has become one of these fighters who's like, okay, if you lose to me... We're going to be asking some really serious questions. Now, again, if you beat Jim Miller, it will kind of give your career a little bit of revitalization. But for Hernandez, you just wonder how far he can go at this stage. Like, I'm really going to have to see him go out there and dominate Jim Miller for me to believe that he has a chance to become uh, the fighter I once thought he could. Because I don't think he's on that same path anymore. You lose to Jim Miller, you get your hair back, you get yoked, and you look like the movie star we expected out of you. At least that's what Donald Cerrone's done. But you have a look at the odds in the matchup. And Miller's the underdog. Open plus 210, plus 160 right now for Hernandez. Open minus 250, minus 190. We have a look at the topology votes. Surprise to us, they are to you. The odds are closing into par. I'm going to say they're going to be close. I'm going to say over under 60% Hernandez. I think they'll be over. I think the fans are going with her. Oh, no. 128 total votes. This fight was just announced. Then out of it, 69% Miller, 57% by submission for the 31% that have Hernandez, 68% by the TKO. So the fans have Miller. The odds suggest Hernandez. I like it when we get a spicy matchup like that. Uh, Matt, the thing I was going to do, Dan Tom does this, and he talks about it on his Protecting Neck podcast, and he does it on his Twitter too. He does that Southpaw report the week of the fights, and he'll go through it and who they face as Southpaw. Alexander Hernandez against fellow Southpaws does really well. He's 3-1 and one in the UFC. Dariush, OAM, and Trinaldo are the wins. Trinaldo. Right, yeah. yeah. And the loss is to Drew Dober. So he's done well against Southpaws in the UFC. The OAM fight was mainly grappling, though, so the stance doesn't really matter. That's all I'll say. And I thought he lost the other one. So really, he's like 1-1-1. One, one, and one. Uh... Again, everything points towards Alexander Hernandez should probably win this fight because he is the much younger guy. I do worry about the TKO loss he just suffered. And here's the weird thing about these fights. I'm really bad at predicting the prospect who had a lot of hype is now fighting the older guy who still has a little bit left in the tank. If the older guy has nothing left in the tank, I feel very safe saying that and stating as much. Go back and watch our Shogun videos from the last four years. But I do think Jim Miller has a chance in this one and that's why I pick him. I don't think he's going to go out there and just get purely out-wrestled and purely out-grappled like we saw in the Joe Selecki matchup. I do worry about that. That is one of the primary fights that I focused on leading up to this because I think if Hernandez is going to have success, he's probably going to avoid 
the striking altogether. I really don't think he wants to risk his chin against Jim Miller. I know Miller's old in his career, but he has shown the ability to still carry quite a bit of pop at this stage. So I feel like my my heart might be picking a little bit too much. But again, I do think Jim Miller, he's well-rounded enough to stay away from the takedown. He still has good cardio at this stage of his career. And I do think he's the better fighter on the feet. Is Vince Carter a Hall of Famer? No, I don't think so. 22 seasons in the NBA. Is Jamie Moyer a Hall of Famer in baseball? I don't think so. Was Dave Andrichuk a Hall of Famer? I don't even know who that is. He is a Hall of Famer. And a Stanley Cup winner, Matt. Guys with really long longevity. Is Jim Miller a Hall of Famer in the UFC? All-time wins leader, all-time fights leader. I don't know. Leader. It's really a question for everybody at home because you can look at it two different ways. Is the longevity enough to get you in? Like in baseball, some guys can have war seasons where they're like three war, but they do it for 20 years and it looks really good. But then other players like a Shohei Otani, for instance, just gets like 10 war every year. But you know he's not going to be able to do that for decades and decades. So I think it really comes down to what your personal preference is. For me, Jim Miller never really reached the heights, I don't think, that a UFC Hall of Famer should. I really think you might not have to get a UFC title, but you've at least had to challenge for it in the past. And Jim Miller, unfortunately, has never been able to do that. I don't like picking guys to get knocked out all that recently, but I do like the fact that Hernandez is going back up to 155, and I think he can hold position on a guy like Jim Miller, like Vince Pichel was able to do. And you can draw similarities out of their game plans. Hernandez kicks more than Pichel. Pichel does not kick very much. Their boxing's very similar, and I think Hernandez can go out there, watch the tape on that, see what Pichel was able to do, and employ that game plan in a matchup like this, even on short notice. So for me, going with Alexander Hernandez, Matt going with Jim Miller, nicknames A10, the great ape. They are what they are. Make sure you check out A-10's our MMA nickname tierless video. Big time fights coming up this weekend. The next one on the docket, Knight versus Prakneow. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. In a fight that was originally scheduled for November 19th of last year, William Knight looking to make the light heavyweight limit for the first time since 2021 when he takes on Poland's Marcin Prakniown. Matt, in this matchup, William Knight, I went over to his Instagram. Now, we're filming this Friday. Is he still just lifting weights? Oh, he's still lifting weights. So he squatted 545 on Instagram today. Now, but when we look at this matchup, Matt, I'd like to try and gain his physique. And so that's what I'm trying to do. But for William Knight taking on Prakniel, Knight's been an interesting case because obviously it was a Muay Thai that led into MMA. He fought Jorgen DeCastro on the amateur scene. He had a really well-documented amateur career. And then Knight makes the turn to pro. And he's 11-4 right now. And in those 15 total fights, a large sample size on a big stage. Like, he fought Tafan Chukwe, got finished there on CFFC. He was on the developmental deal with the UFC when that happened. He fought Cody Brundage on Contender Series, got taken down, and he was losing the fight until he came back and he got the finish. He might go with Cray. Came back. It was in the first round. Check the tape, bud. Goes out there and beats Alexa Kammer. Beats uh, Fabio Charant. Won a performance bonus for that one. Beats Alonzo Menafield. The losses to Jung in the UFC. Uh, Grecian and Devin Clark. But the big thing, and the reason I say, like, this is the first time William Knight's making light heavyweight since 2021. Not only did he weigh 251 his last fight against Devin Clark, but he weighed 218 for a fight at light heavyweight against Max Grecian in his last, like, light heavyweight schedule contest. This fight's like that song by Empire of the Sun, High and Low, because I can sell you highs and lows on both of these guys and probably sell you a pretty convincing package of both. Like, William Knight has insane power. Like, so much power, it is insane when he is able to land clean shots on his opponents. The problem is, there is a give and a take to having such incredible power, especially on the feet. And I agree with you. I will be very 
bit curious to see what he looks like and whether or not he will be able to make the 205 pound limit because again there are some fighters who do those like one-offs up at heavyweight who are light heavyweights and they look pretty good but they'll weigh in at you know the 220 225 range William Knight is not cut from that cloth whatsoever so I will be curious to see him fighting Marcin Pragnia but Pragnia has been a tough case to solve in the UFC up until this point because he came over with quite a bit of hype he looked really good before he did make the jump to the UFC and he got off to one of the worst starts I think a fighter could with his background I guess on his way in three first round losses and they were all very sudden I would say Ankalaev and Slow Mike Rodriguez. And I would say two of those three aren't unforgivable, but they would be surprising, I would say, for a guy like Pragnio. He looked good in the Kolo Roundtree fight, though, and that's when a lot of people started turning the page on Pragnio because he ate some big shots early, was able to come on late in that fight. But again... I know a lot of people want to look at that fight as a positive attack. Now, when I went back and watched that fight, I just asked myself, Khalil, why did you stop throwing? Like, Khalil Roundtree gave that fight up more than Marcin Pragnia won it. It was, was kind of like the Chris Curtis fight against Jack Romanson. Like, I always go back, this is why I roll my eyes at people who get mad at close decisions. Teddy Atlas has this quote where it's, hey, you lost the you lost the ability to argue about the decision because you didn't really fight that well later on down the fight. That's how I looked at that fight. Did Pragnia throw more in the third round? Yeah, I guess, but he still left himself wide open for power shots. The problem was, Khalil just wasn't landing them, and against Linz, he fell back into some of those negative traps, but the thing is, Linz is a much more active no. fighter, so stylistically, I know that's weird. I just think Linz is a bit of a tougher matchup for Pragnio. I just think for me, and again, I can't say this enough times, I have no idea what to expect out of this fight. Like, Pragnio could eat the first big shot and go down in this matchup, or he could be elusive from the outside, because he does have a really fun kicking style when he is able to implement his kicks into his combinations, and I think have the edge from that range. I just don't know how he's going to be able to establish that range or really hold it. No, and if you look at it for Pragnow, he's a Kukushin Kai black belt karate champ, and you know that. He's champ out of Poland two times national champion. He finished second in the European uh, competition in 2012, and you see that. I mean, to me, when I look at Marcin Pragnow, if I was to tell somebody off the street, I'd say, okay, I'm going to make a non-MMA reference. People might roll their eyes at that. It's kind of like if your friend had a Sunfire in 2002 and the only thing that they had on their tape deck was Eminem and without me. I was four years old. Round the outside, round the outside, round the outside. That's what Pragnio does. He goes round and round and round the outside and he throws a couple of nice shots in combination. But the thing that I don't like out of Pragnio in this fight and all the others... What happens when he gets hit or the air around him gets hit? So there's a reset and his hands go from here to like he's carrying very heavy groceries from the car. And then he like backs out and makes a big reaction. And against a guy like William Knight, either he has great counters round the outside or he has big reactions even if the punches don't hit him. What does William Knight like to do? Yeah, he's got a big overhand. Yeah, he likes to go for big action takedowns. What's William Knight's favorite shot? Even go into his bio on his UFC.com site and it'll tell you exactly what his favorite shot is. I just like a steady one-two. And that's what William Knight really likes. And I swear to you, that's on his UFC.com bio in the Q&A section. So I have a hard time with this fight, folks, because... Just like a 2002 Pontiac Sunfire, I don't know what I'm going to get day to day. This has to be said too. If you have two 24-year-olds fighting each other where they both shown flashes of promise, but it's been kind of a rocky road, we can project them to then get better after those shaky performances that we've seen. Mercer Pragnio and William Knight are not going to show up this weekend, or I guess next weekend, and just become completely different fighters. Be like awesome they, if they did. It would be, don't get me wrong, but they are very much set in their ways. So I really do agree with your breakdown. Either Pragnio is able to use his movement and his kicks and have some success that way, or... 
He looks like a stunned deer in headlights every single time William Knight lands on him, and he gets finished as a result of that. And those are really the only two ways I see this fight going. If you're trying to make an accurate prediction on this fight, it's kind of like me at the tables in high school in 2011 before classes on my iPhone 4 playing Temple of Doom, because you're just sitting there. Temple or Temple Run. Freak. Temple Run. Temple of Doom. Kalima. But no, playing Temple Run. Because you know what happens, Matt? Num num shivai. Well, you never win. You never win. And that's what it's like trying to predict this fight. So you look at the odds in the matchup between Knight and Prakniao, and they're really close, actually. As so they should be. Knight open at par, minus 105. Uh, Prakniao at par, minus 120. So those don't jive. But regardless, Prakniao slight favorite. Knight slight underdog. We have a look at the topology votes. Surprise to us, they are to you. Did you have an iPhone 4? Did you play Temple Run? I played Temple Run. I didn't have an iPhone 4. Okay. Well, uh, what's your guess on the over-under? I'm going to say, you know what? You said it. How about that? I'll put it right at 50. Who do you think is going to be the favorite? <laughs> you turkey. I think, uh, I think William Knight's going to be favored over the fans. I'm going to say over. Okay. All right. And it is. So 487 total votes, 70% Knight, 84% by knockout for the 30% out of Prakniao, 63% by decision. Matt, Prakniao has better volume round the outside. Prakniao slowed down after a good first round against Felipe Linz his last time out. William Knight, I have no idea what his weight cut's going to look like, but he can squat 545 and I can't squat shit without a barbell. So Matt... I have the crumb rubber plates downstairs. My pick's William Knight in the matchup. What's yours? I also have William Knight. Jalen Hurts can squat 600 pounds, though, so come on, William Knight. Uh, this should be a fun matchup for as long as it lasts. Again, these are action-style fighters, so we probably will get a finish one way or the other, but I do think the 1-2 of Knight's going to be able to get through some of the defenses of Pracnio, because Pracnio's not a guy who's going to go out there and fight with his hands up like he's in some Philly shell, so for those reasons, I have William Knight, but if he looks terrible on the scales, or if he misses weight by, like, 10, 15 pounds, I'm going to have a very different opinion on this matchup. We're well, going to have to wait until until Friday to see what happens at weigh-ins. It's a question mark kick special, Matt. Both of us going with the Nightmare William Knight to get the win. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Coming up this weekend at Heavyweight, Matt finishes a cherry tomato. We have a couple of guys that won twice each on Dana White's Contender yeah. Series. We have the Stormtrooper, Jamal Pogues, representing Syndicate MMA taking on Josh Parisian. Matt, do you think Josh Parisian would be really, really cool if he walked out to that Run the Jewels remix, like, ooh, la, la, ah, wee, wee, with, like, Parisian as his last name? Wouldn't that be cool? I get, it would be very out of character, I would say. I guess it would. But, Matt, for a guy whose last name is as such and probably enjoys bruschetta, that's the rest of me, Francais jokes. But when you look at a matchup like this for Parisian, he's alternated wins and losses recently. And that's kind of been the story of the career. And I mentioned it, like, he fought Greg Rebello quite a while ago on Contender Series. For some reason, a first-round knockout there wasn't impressive enough. So then he beats Ocho Cinco, Chad Johnson. And the last time I said that, somebody was like, but he didn't actually fight that Chad Johnson. No, he didn't. It's a joke. He beats him by first round finish. So after that, he ends up in the UFC. Now, what people might not realize is after he beat Greg Rebello, they went, well, we don't want you in the UFC, but gosh darn it, we're trying to reboot that ultimate fighter. Let's get you on the season. And he lost to, uh, you know, Cuban heavyweight Michelle Batista. Gets finished there, then lose to Brett Martin. I thought for the longest time, Brett Martin could be the best heavyweight prospect known to man, but he hasn't competed enough. So maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. But if I look at everything out of Josh Parisian, what's he good at? 
2008 MMAing everybody. That's the weird thing about Parisian. It is a hard. It is very difficult to get a good opinion as to where he sits in the division because he just fights a bunch of entry level UFC fighters. And if you do have promise, you're probably gonna beat Josh Parisian. If you don't though, or if you are past your prime, well, guess what? Josh Parisian's probably gonna beat you. Now, Parisian is a good 2008 heavyweight. Like he is well rounded, and that is something you have to say for Parisian. He's got he good is, cardio. Exactly, is plus cardio for the division. Decent chin. Decent chin, but it gets tested too much, and that really is the concern, especially in a matchup like this. But for Parisian, it is just a meat and potatoes game. Like, he's going to go out there, and he's going to use his cardio, use his physicality, and really try to wear on you. The problem is, he doesn't have great striking defense in a division where that's one of the most important attributes a fighter can have. Because I don't care how sloppy a heavyweight is, I don't care how poor the wrestling defense is, everybody, by being virtue of a heavyweight, has hand power and has real punching power. And for Parisian, he has had his chin tested quite a few times, and even in the fights where he wins, there's always that moment where Parisian gets clipped by an uppercut, gets hit by a hook, and you do worry about, oh my goodness, have his legs given out? And for Parisian, I just think we know what we know about him, and there's nothing wrong with that. He's probably going to find himself in a lot more fights like this one, no matter what the result of this is, because he's going to be able to out-wrestle guys who have that big hole in their game and who can't get back up to their feet. But again, if you're a plus striker who has pretty good takedown defense and you can use your movement a little bit, you're probably going to look pretty good against a guy like Josh Parisian. Josh Parisian is last time out weighing in, really testing the limits, 265.5, taking on 248 and Jamal Pogues. But if you look at it for Pogues... He's not a big guy. Like, he's more a light heavyweight. So I'm surprised to see that he's sticking around in this division. I guess easier path up to the top now that you have Jamal Hill as your champ at 205. But when you look at both these guys' records, they really have lost to some big names. Like, if you look at it for Pogues' last time out, or sorry, his last loss, it was a main event with the LFA for the title against Alex Polizzi, a guy who... Listen, the guy can wrestle. He can't beat UL Romero, but he can wrestle very, very can. well. But when you go back and you watch that fight, yeah, Polizzi wins in the championship rounds by submission. Pogues has his moments with his wrestling. Now, in the first round, it was like monkey god Shorty Torres, the slam with uh, Pogues riding his back. But Pogues had good scrambles from the bottom. Pogues had his own good wrestling. He also lost to Jordan Young, who's definitely gone too soon, and a loss to Taylor Johnson in his debut. But what I know out of Pogues is I cough is the fact that when striking for striking sake, if I compare these guys, Jamal Pogues is probably a better outside striker, but he tends to like to, to crowd the distance and throw kind of in combination, a little wild with a lot of power in the end of his shots. I think wrestling... Well, again, meat and potatoes of Parisian, he's going to wear on you. He's going to put his body weight on you. Kind of like a Blagoy Ivanov is going to try bit, and do. Yeah. Tire you out up against the fence, get the takedown. Similar to what he did against Alain Badeau. Whereas Jamal Pogues is going to go out there and try and Vitaly Minikov his way into this. We're going to take you down. We're going to slam you. We're going to do whatever we want. But when I do look at both these guys, Matt, you have Scorpion fighting system out of Michigan for a guy like Parisian. For Jamal Pogues, I know it's got him listed on uh, Topology and Sherdog. Sure Big Daddy Joe Stevenson's Cobra Kai. But he's training out a syndicate for this one with John Wood. So eager to see what the game plan is for Pogues. But when I look at this matchup, Matt, I, I don't know. I have a hard time trying to make the pick. Pogues is a young heavyweight at 27, 9-3, and three, and when you're trying to project a ceiling for a guy, I have no idea. I have to see it against those top-level guys, and when I've seen him against top-level guys, he's lost so far. So I don't really know what we're going to get out of Pogues. And likewise, style for style, this could either be over in the first round or it could be one of those slow burns at heavyweight. It could be. I just think Pokes has enough grappling defense in his back pocket to keep this fight on the feet primarily. And if that is the case, I do favor him in some of the striking matchups. Because the weird thing is, if you do crowd the space and brawl with Parisian, 
you're gonna have a decided speed advantage in that area and Pokes does hit pretty hard when he is able to get guys not even in combination even the single shot from that spot and I think for those reasons Parisian is gonna really struggle in this fight if he's not able to get the takedown consistently especially early in the matchup well it is gonna be a very very tricky one from that respect if you do have a look at the odds in this matchup between these two guys at heavyweight Pokes is a big favorite uh open minus 170 he's a minus 200 favorite right now Parisian open plus 145 plus 167 we have a look at the topology votes Matt surprise to us there to you so that was the first time I saw those odds that was a surprise to me because I have a hard time trying to pick this one I think the fans are going to go overwhelmingly with Pogues, though, so I'm going to say over under 75% Pogues. I was thinking 82, so I'll say over. I'm going to say over. Slightly over. 410 total votes, 78% Pogues, 63% by decision. Majority thinking heavyweights are going to decision. It'll be a bad one if it does. 22% at Parisian, 55% by decision, 42% by knockout. I think Pogues is a little bit quicker, a little bit more well-rounded. Of course, I like Parisian's wins in the UFC, one by split against Roki Martinez. He pushed a good pace in that one, threw some nice volume in the clinch, and against Baudot, he was just able to kind of have his Michigan way with him. So for me, Matt, I like Pogues with the grappling offense defense eh. but i like the fact that he's one of those heavyweights that can scramble out of bad positions we'll see if he can do it against one of the bigger heavyweights in the division. and that's why this is a really good debut for pokes we're gonna learn a lot about him no matter what the result of this fight is i am picking him in this matchup but i'll say this for parisian it reminds me a lot of what randy brown unfortunately has to do tomorrow randy brown was on a four fight win streak and now it's hey you're a gatekeeper for a really good promising prospect for parisian it would have been nice if hey you've beat alain Badeau. now you can get another guy who's a little bit up in the division not another fighter making their debut it just is unfortunate that this is what Parisian has had to build towards, but I do have Pogues in the matchup. Both of us going with the Stormtrooper Jamal Pogues to get the win in the matchup. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have, Matt. Zach Paugas who, taking baby? on, oh my, Jordan Wright. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fighting Apex. We always say, let's get into it. Voss, Violets, a Beach Hill, and a Toupee. Can you put that together? No, I'm very confused. Bapa, what are we doing here? Matt, we have a matchup between two guys meeting in the middle. That doesn't happen very often. Former heavyweight Zach Paunga, the Ripper, taking on the Beverly Hills Ninja, Jordan Wright. So Wright, typically a middleweight. Paunga, typically a light heavyweight, but he fought on the Ultimate Fighter at heavyweight. The finale was at heavyweight. He got knocked out in the second round against Mo Usman. I mean, listen, that guy was just... That, that, that guy... The motorist, they call him. He was able to go out there and get that win. This has got to be the strangest f***ing co-main event I've seen it's in a, weird one. a calendar year. The last strange one, unranked heavyweights. Jake Collier fought Chase Sherman in a co-main event in January of last year. This fight, I have no idea. And it's no disrespect to either guy. I like Paunga on the season of the Ultimate Fighter. He was heavily favored to beat Mo Usman in that matchup. He was kind of the uncrowned champ. Like, Treshawn Gore was on the Ultimate Fighter as well. For Pauga, great first round. And then in the second round, Mo Usman realized, hey, I can punch. And he landed a knockout blow. So a good win there. But Pauga definitely had the skills. Now, it's weird to see a guy that's a few days away from his 35th birthday make his UFC debut at light heavyweight. But the same thing for Jordan Wright can be said as to why it's weird. Because he's lost three fights in a row by finish. Under the Zufa banner for Jordan Wright, Matt. He's uh, two and a five. Now, one of them's a no contest, so that's a, that's a no contest. I'm considering it a loss. He lost to Fluffy Hernandez. He, he got finished, but Fluffy got popped for the weed. But for Jordan Wright, three finished losses in a row, and now he's fighting Zach Paunga. 
Can I be honest though? I like Jordan Wright at 205 a lot better than I do at 185. At least I do think that's going to help one of the big issues he's had at 185, which is when he gets hit by clean shots, he does get hurt more often than not. So I do think having an additional 20 pounds behind him will help his ability to absorb shots, but it will be interesting because He's not fighting a guy who he will be similar in size with. Like, Paunga will also carry more power in this division. So, I'll just be very curious to see what Jordan Wright does look like up 20 pounds. Because, again, I think it will help solve one of the bigger issues that Jordan Wright has had throughout his career. And that's just that if you hit him at 185 pretty clean... He doesn't recover all that well. And that's been a big thing for like Alexander Hernandez, for instance. Like think about Michael Bisping. In every good fight he's had, he gets dropped, gets up, and gets better. For Hernandez, when he gets wobbled, it is difficult for him to recover after the fact. And I do think Jordan Wright is more similar to him in that capacity to where once you get him hit, he's not going to then fight in an intelligent manner and clear the cobwebs. He will start to become a bit of a gunslinger and that gets him caught by some big shots. But again, I just want that to be said. I think the biggest storyline for me going into this fight is how does Jordan Wright look at 205? Because again, is he the best fighter in the world at 185? No, but I do think we will see an improved version well, of him up 20 pounds. And he's fought at light heavyweight in the UFC. He fought Ike Villanueva at light heavyweight. He finished him in that matchup. Now, he weighed 200 pounds for that fight. So I'm eager to see what we're going to get out of That's right. I think the most interesting part about him is his corner. Every single time out, Vladimir Matyshenko and Anthony Hardock. It's one of the biggest, most star-studded corners that nobody seems to care about from MMA of years past. And for Zach Pauga, represents Elevation Fight Team. He was in the corner for Devin Clark, who just pulled out all the stops against Da Jung last or a couple weeks ago now at this point as his video comes out. But for Pauga, we're going to throw it on back. We're going to talk about him in his kind of UFC debut and what we really liked out of him. When I look at Zach Pauga, I expected, okay, the guy, young in his career, young in his MMA career... He's coming out of a bigger gym. Uh, he fought a decent level of competition. He beat Maluko, so that's fun. Beat him over at Cage Warriors 130. So I watched the fight, and I went, okay, you beat Marcus Perez. That's really good. Marcus Perez missed weight by, what, four and a half pounds? He weighed 210.5. And in that fight, Perez wins the first round handily. Completely out-wrestles Zach Paoga. Second round, it's kind of 50-50. Third round, Perez doesn't really have a whole lot left. Pauga is the fresher fighter. Pauga's fight against uh, Bartling on The Ultimate Fighter. A lot of single shots, a lot of jab to the body, come up with a right leg kick, and then his fight against Heiderman, pretty well the same thing until he lands and finishes him. But what I do like out of Pauga is that at least his shots are straight. There is something on the in-between when it's notched the knockout. So... For Pauga, I really do like his jab to the body. I do like some of those steadying shots. They're not necessarily the most damaging shots in the world, but they're things that are going to get your numbers up, which do matter. They're going to resonate in the eyes of the judges, which does matter. And they're going to set up your own power shots, which is going to be very important for this fight. The thing that weirds me out about this one, if you look at Zach Pauga, and Forrest Griffin even said it in one of his fights on Contender Series, he was like, wow... That's a good finish. It was his last one. He's like, that's a good finish. This guy normally fights to a decision. And if you look at Zach Pauga fights, if every fight was 15 rounds, he'd knock guys out in like the 14th round. He'd just tire them out. Because Pauga actually does move well on the outside. He gets backed up a lot. He gets held up against the cage. He doesn't have great takedown defense. So in his fight against Usman, 80% had him to win. He was more than a 2-1 to favorite. And now all of a sudden, we're in a situation where it's the 114th ranked heavyweight on topology versus the 61st ranked middleweight. And they're meeting at light heavyweight. I Like, the winner of this stays in the organization. And that's a weird thing to say for a co-main event, but that's honestly how I look at this fight. Because unless Pauga does look like a much better inversion of himself at 205, let's say he shows up just shredded. Like he's lost a lot of the bad weight, if you will, and he's been able to gain a lot of muscle. Maybe he will be a different fighter, but the problem is, and I'm really glad you brought it up, 
at 35 years of age, it is quite a bit to just assume some guy's automatically going to become a newer version of himself. And like you said, he has fought at 205. He really did only do the heavyweight thing for the opportunity in the Ultimate Fighter. It reminds me a lot of, remember when the Ultimate Fighter did that heavy hitter season? It was heavyweights versus, uh, not versus, but it was heavyweights and female uh, featherweights. Juan Espino one. But the thing was, every women's featherweight who was on that episode yeah. immediately went I, back down to the bantamweight. I, I, I just made the mistake and said bantamweight. So yeah. th that was the thing. I, I do think Palga is more cut from that cloth. We will see him at a better version at 205. But again, even if he knocks out Jordan right in the first round, are we really going to learn that much more about him moving forward? Well, we're going to figure it out because Matt, Zach Pauga, he's a minus 260 favorite against Usman. He opened minus 195 here. He's a minus 285 favorite. Jordan Wright, who's been finished in three straight fights, open plus 170, plus 235. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us there to you. The fans love Zach Pauga. That's why I made that Treshawn Gore comparison. Like, Gore was the fan favorite. He made it into the OC, even though he got injured and didn't make the finals. Pauga lost in the finals by knockout. I think the fans take him in this one because of the recent stretch. I'm going to say over, under 75% Pauga. I think it'll be under. I think they'll be close. I think they're going to be close. They're over. Eight, 413 total votes, 85% Pauga, 82% by knockout. For the 15% that I've right, 73% by knockout. Matt, I haven't touched on it. Zach Pauga builds in his fights. Jordan Wright burns in his fights. So that's really a big time deal when it comes down to this one. Who do you have in the matchup? It's a difficult fight to predict just because either guy could win by finish. It's one of those weird fights where it's, hey, if either guy won by first round knockout, wouldn't be all that surprised just because of their fighting styles. I talked a lot about how I think Jordan Wright will be more durable at 205, but again, the issue is he's fighting bigger punchers at this division too, and the big issue I have with Jordan Wright isn't just the fact that he doesn't have the greatest chin of all time, it's his defense, and that's something that's not going to change just because you gain an extra 20 pounds, so I'm going to pick Zach Pauga in this matchup, but it, there's so many question marks around this fight. Like, I, I don't know how many more times we we could say that in this video. I get uh, Jordan Wright a plus 235 against Zach Pauga, debuting 35-year-old. And listen, the age isn't the main factor because he debuted at, what, 30 as an amateur, and then he rolled, and he won, and he won, and he Not won. Not miles. And what I do like out of Zach Pauga is the fact that he's really steady in his fights. He picks up his output as he goes, and he can slip those power shots in there, which at 205 and 265, we don't necessarily see as much of. So I do like Zach Pauga's style, but for the same reason that I picked Mohamed Usman when he fought Pauga, I'm going to pick Jordan Wright in this matchup too. I like the power. I like the kicks out of a guy like Jordan Wright. I think that's a big difference maker. And if these two guys get into the clinch, watch out for the really steady striking of Pauga. But man, out of Jordan Wright, like there is a storm. If so, Wright loses this fight though. Yeah, it's over. But I do like the storm out of Jordan Wright in this matchup. It's scary because the chin's been tested. But we're split on the pick. Matt going with Zach the Ripper. I don't like the nickname. Taking on Jordan Wright, the Beverly Hills Ninja. Don't really like that nickname because that's reserved for Chris Farley. But Matt, we have a really interesting fight in this one. And in the main event, uncrowned champ. Former title challenger. That's the storyline right there. Blanchfield versus Santos. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. Coming up this weekend in the flyweight division, we have the scariest woman who's five foot one you're ever going to see in your entire life, Jessica Andrade, the third ranked women's flyweight in this very stacked division, continues to grow, taking on number 10, the uncrowned champ, the big time prospect. It is cold blooded Aaron Blanchfield, as always. One half year hosting to a Craig Allen Twitter and Instagram, and you can find Matt Allen, respective socials, Matt Allen FNP. And I know we're really excited about this fight. It was thrown together on short notice we put the full card video out there friday night saturday night across the wire on the prelims ufc 284 out is santos in 
is on Drage on a week's notice at 125. So definitely adds a lot of intrigue to a 100%. fight where you had to think the winner of Santos and Blanchfield, possible opportunity at either title shot or a fight with maybe Manoff Yaro just due to the fact that Valentina Shevchenko, she's already booked up with Mexico's Alexa Grasso. So now you look at this matchup, three versus 10, and for Andrage, I mean, it's, it's like that old Ozzy Osbourne song. Flying high again! Like, she's really taken off. She's on three fights in a row. I bet people didn't know I was going to quote that one. But wins over Cynthia Calvillo, Amanda Lemos, and Lauren Murphy. And the last main event slot for Jessica Andrade, that fight against Lemos, where a lot of people were kind of wondering. Lemos was on a streak of her own. And then, look at that. I mean, we're talking a standing, tricky, tricky submission for Jessica Andrade. Similar to what Blanchfield was able to do two fights ago against J.J. Aldrich, albeit that Amanda Lemos, J.J. Aldrich, maybe not on the same scale of fighter. But no. when you look at this matchup, Matt, I know you're really excited about this one, and probably more so than the fight with Santos. Oh, without a doubt. I genuinely think Jessica Andrade, pound for pound, is one of, if not the greatest women's fighter of all time. Like, it's Amanda Nunes. You have to respect Ronda Rousey, what she did Chris this Cyborg. Sport. Chris Cyborg, of course. And then Jessica Andrade might not have kind of the prime or the highest highs that some of them have, but when you talk about longevity and true lasting power in a division, she's been top five in three separate divisions. Really the only three women's divisions, and let's be honest, she's probably one of the top five 145ers in the UFC too. I just really respect Jessica Andrade and what she's able to do in the cage because she stays true to herself, which you normally wouldn't recommend when a fighter fights as aggressive as someone like Jessica Andrade because when people go out there and throw hammers with their chin up in the air, normally that's looked at as a massive nag. But in the flyweight division for the women's and in the strawweight division for the women's, there's not a lot of one-punch murderous punchers out there. So when you go in there with that mindset of, hey, I'm going to eat your power shots to deliver my own, nobody in either one of these weight classes can deliver the same levels of power that Andrade is able to do when she is able to get on the inside and really flurry well to the body and to the head. Now, we have seen her struggle with some of the rangier strikers in the past. The Ioana fight's always one that stands out to me because it was a lot of Andrade rushing forward. Ioana using her footwork more than using her close-range attacks and really just being able to outthink Andrade. But that's the problem. Andrade on the feet has really only struggled with the greatest strikers, at least technically, on the feet. Like Rose Namajunas, she struggled with a little bit. But even if you go back and look at their two fights, yes, she gets dropped by Rose early on in their first matchup. But she also looks really good later on in the second one that she ends up losing. And with Andrade too, she's not someone who can really just get held down for long periods of time. And I think that's going to be a really important factor for Blanchfield in this fight. We talked about this a lot at the start of the week about how Blanchfield, especially early in her career, was showing a lot more of her striking. But now that she is fighting more upper echelon fighters. She's going to go to what got her to the dance, and her X-Factor definitely is the grappling. I just don't know if she's going to be able to hold Andrade down, A, and B, I don't mean this with any disrespect, but what the f*** is Aaron Blanchfield going to do on the outside with Jessica so, Andrade? I really think she's going to have to use her kicks, but they're not that fast. I think it's going to be tougher to set them up from the outside. Yeah, and with Aaron Blanchfield, you kind of really did nail it on the head, and I don't know if we covered this enough when we talked about the Santos fight, and for a lot of people that are listening, they're going to say, guys, don't talk about it, but... When we previewed the fight that Santos is going to have against Blanchfield, spoiler alert, we both picked Tyler Santos. And for me, it was Santos' ability to go in, cover range, get right back out, pop the 1-2 out there, mix in the power combinations, in and out, good in the clinch, and then she could really initiate some decent, uh, you know, defensive grappling. We saw it against Mara Romero Barella the last time that Santos struggled with some of the Just grappling, but she's definitely gotten a lot better since that's happened. And for Jessica Andrade, you can kind of draw some parallels. I mean, you look at it, where was she getting submitted in her career well the last time is in 2015 against Raquel Pennington at 135 pounds so things have definitely changed for her and she's definitely been able to show up and show up with her own grappling now again the aggressiveness comes 
to the striking. And you're going to think I'm going to talk about Andrade. But with Aaron Blanchfield, let's go back and look at it a little bit. Because when she was over there with Invicta, she was really putting on a great show. Her only loss, a split decision loss to Tracy Cortez. I'll say it today. I said it a month ago. I said it a year ago. I thought that she won that Tracy Cortez fight. However, we get to see her hands a little bit more. But it really was out of the orthodox stance, that lead leg, getting it up there and clapping the ear of her opponents. And she had great success with that in a lot of her fights. Now, the Leonardo fight... She hit her hard with it in the first round. She drops her and finishes her with it in the second round. She continued that role as she got into the UFC. But if you go and you look at the fights that she has had in the UFC, in this for Aaron Blanchfield, she beats Sarah Alpar, takes her down, lands a lot of good strikes, controls her. Completely outgrappled Miranda Maverick. And if anybody was going to outgrapple Miranda Maverick, I mean, I guess it would be Blanchfield, but you didn't really, you know... And the amount of respect that people had for Maverick at, in her career, especially at that point, like, yeah. she was looked at as, like, the heir apparent to the throne. So, almost. a great job there. She fights J.J. Aldrich. She submits her in the second round, and we glance over a lot just saying that. And then in her fight against Molly McCann, it's one hitter, Smash quitter. Match. We're done with the jiu-jitsu. The only fight where we've seen a lot of resistance for Blanchfield in the UFC is the fight against J.J. Aldrich. First round, Aldrich on the outside. She's utilizing all all of her tricky techniques, her really good striking, boxing, I should say. And then if you look at it, she was able to get a couple of takedowns. She was able to thwart the takedown and then ultimately gets caught up in the clinch, up against the cage, gets caught in that really tight, tricky submission attempt. And that really is the calling card for Aaron Blanchfield. You know her jiu-jitsu out of Henzo Gracie's in New York. She's been kind of cross-training at different gyms as the career's gone on. Be interesting to see if we get to see a little bit more striking out of Aaron Blanchfield. And doubly, when you look at this matchup, obviously, Andrade is taking this fight on a week's notice. It's a five-round fight. Her last one against Lauren Murphy was just three. But for Blanchfield and Santos, when it was announced that that was going to be a main event, the poster didn't even come out until, what, like the Friday before, yeah. I think? And it was a really, really wonky-looking poster, if I could add that. But Blanchfield Santos was supposed to be three rounds on a few weeks notice. It was announced that that's going to be the main event of the evening. So both of these women, in a way, taking a short notice fight. We know that it is more short notice for Andrade. But vice versa. I mean, for Andrade, she's had title fights. She's had main and events. she's taken fights on short notice before, too. That's the important yeah. thing. Like, this isn't the first time Andrade hasn't had a full training camp and is now expected to fight one of the best fighters in the world. Like, I'm pretty sure going into the Calvillo fight, it was the exact same storyline of, hey, think about how good Calvillo could be. And we all saw what happened there. I just go back to, what have we ever seen Jessica Andrade struggle with? Fighting some of the all-time great fighters. And that's pretty much it. And like, Aaron Blanchfield could be that fighter. Uh, she could be that fighter, she, Matt. Uh, she could be, but, like, I could hit 23s in a row in an NBA game. I won't. It's just for Blanchfield, it's far too early to tell. Like, you brought it up a lot. If you struggle with J.J. Aldrich, I do struggle to see you going out there and looking great against the likes of a Manal Firo, a Talia Santos, a Jessica Andrade, and that's why I do pick Andrade in this matchup. But again, I look at this fight as very similar to the Santos fight, and I said this a lot. It was, hey, this could be the loss that is the best thing for your career, because if you beat an Andrade, if you beat a Santos, you're fighting Valentina next. That's a pretty difficult fight. I think we can all agree on that. Or Alexa Grasso, or the likes of a Manal Firo. It's just really difficult fights after this we, one if she is able to win. We have a system to these videos. You've already given it up. You're just like a cheap... But when you look at this, Matt, we threw it out there to the YouTube wow, community so tab. 500 total votes, 63% going with Andrade out of the comments. Russ Godet's really looking forward to this one. Love them both, but Andrade is a beast. 
she's going to get the win. Uh, Orthodox Southpaw, hard pick for me. Hard to go against Andrade, but Blanchfield submitted McCann like it was nothing. Blanchfield is a grappling savage for sure. We'll go with one more. Christopher Gray, y'all crazy. Blanchfield's going to walk through this like a walk in the park. Severely underrated. Matt, when I do look at this fight, if you just have a look at the odds in this one too, I mean... Andrade is a slight favorite, and she did open a minus 190. She's minus 140, so the odds are swaying Blanchfield's way. Blanchfield now plus 114. I look at this fight, and it was fun to watch it years ago, and then it was fun to reread it on the plane today in the fighter's mind. And Sam Sheridan did a whole chapter on Kenny Florian, and Kenny Florian's fight against the Muscle Shark. I see this fight going just like Kenny Florian's fight against the Muscle Shark. He's gonna he struggled with his jiu-jitsu off the back. There were bright lights. He struggled in that big-time main event atmosphere, and that's what caused him to lose that fight. I see Aaron Blanchfield having a hard time getting openings with some of the jiu-jitsu. The wrestling offensively is great for Andrade, but for me, it's the striking X-Factor. It's the in and out, as you already mentioned. The work to the head and to the body. Andrade's going to throw the kitchen sink at you, and where I saw somebody like J.J. Aldrich, albeit she is a southpaw, but Aldrich had a lot of success boxing on the outside, backing away and circling away. That was the X factor for Aldrich until she got caught. For me, Andrade has those sliders turned all the way up. I agree with everything you said, but not for the reasons you said them. I don't think Andrade should ever back up in this fight, even for one step. If you back up, you give Blanchfield the chance to then get back into the fight with her own kicks. I'm just you saying, get rid of her Aldrich kicks, Aldrich had success no, no, with I know, a lot of the striking and the boxing, and even she had success in the back right. foot. Andrade does not fight like that. She's always oh, on yeah. the offense. And if she moves back, again, she's going to then let Blanchfield get one of her best uh, weapons back into the fight. If you crash the distance, think about Caitlin Chukagin. Caitlin Chukagin's great on the outside. Jessica Andrade went forward on her, hit her with one hook to the body, and that fight was pretty much over. So I, I just think Andrade, if she stays in the pocket and is very dedicated to that game plan, she has a great chance to win this fight. Last time out for Andrade, the scorecards, 30-25, 30-26, 30-25, round one significant strike, 61, round two, 75, round three, 95. She landed 231 significant strikes against Lauren Murphy. And... Listen, we know Lauren Murphy, Aaron Blanchfield, definitely different points in their career to this point, but really excited about this matchup, Matt. And again, a lot of good prospects featured on the card. It is a little bit watered down, and we have to admit it. When oh, when yeah. we, you got to call it when it's got to be called. I mean, you got a lot of contender series fights, a lot of fighters coming off of losses. This is one of the weaker cards that we're ever going to have this year. Next weekend, you have Krilov versus Span. That's an interesting fight in the light heavyweight division. But next weekend's more of the same. It's a lot of debuts, contender series, stuff that we can get really excited about. But overall, the MMA community, I mean, the folks that are coming off the UFC 284, Matt, like, that was one of the biggest videos we've ever had on the channel. That was top three of all of the videos that we've ever had on Fight Name Picks. So we want to thank you so much. But when it does come to the talent on some of these cards, yes, there's good prospects. But at the same time, you got to kind of pick on the UFC a little bit when it's due. Well, yeah, like if I went to an NBA game and just watched two benches play against each other the whole entire Low time, management. I'm still watching NBA talent, so I'm happy about it, but there's still levels to it, and that has to be said. And yeah, kind of like how load management allows you to rest your stars, the UFC doesn't always like to have their stars on these cards, so then, you know, they don't have to spend a lot of money on it. That's besides the point, though. This is a huge opportunity for Aaron Blanchfield, though, and I can't stress that enough. Like, she went from being in a very difficult fight where a lot of people saw her as the underdog to still being in that position, don't get me wrong, but it's against an opponent on short notice, who you are a lot bigger than, and that does have to be said. Like, yeah. Blanchfield's big for the division, and Andrade is not, and... 
It's a way bigger name, too. Like, if you beat Jessica Andrade, that does massive things for your career. If you beat Santos, it's a really good win. It's going to get you towards your goals in the sport. But in, you know, the general MMA world, people aren't necessarily going to put as much weight behind it as they will if she can go out there and beat someone like Andrade. So, a great opportunity for everybody featured on this card. Question mark kicks two hours before the prelims. There's no travel, so it's going to be a regular show for us. And I'm going to be here for the rest of the week. So, Matt, it is a big-time card. Again, question mark kicks twitter and instagram at craig allen fmp at matt allen fmp at fight night picks make sure you're checking out some of that great content the likes are appreciated the subscribers that join the channel this week you folks are definitely awesome everybody out there thank you so much for tuning in keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, into it.